Hello, lovely listener. Um, Before we begin this episode, it is me back again to warn you of some of the content in it. In this episode, we will be discussing suicide and a whole bunch of just, like, there's going to be slavery, there's going to be blackface, but it's a whole bunch of just racism, generally. Um, So, if that's not your cup of tea, please listen with caution. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Oh, I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts on these movies because it was a very mixed bag for me. Yeah, really? For me, it was not that mixed. I liked most of them. I think it's going to be really hard, actually, to choose a number one. I liked most of them, but there were a few that jumped out at me as being like really good. And then some that were like, yeah, that's that's a movie. That's a good that's a that's a competent (laughs) movie. But it's interesting. I think most of them were kind of like around the same amount of goodness for me okay but. i mean to be fair this might also not because it, like because i know some of the fun facts already right 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 okay sorry i'm okay. eating i'm eating chocolate <laughs> I'm, i've become Whoa. you i've become Whoa. you <laughs> no. i just made a reel about how this is not- i know i saw <laughs> i should have i know <laughs> i was warned <laughs> hello instagram <laughs> hello instagram Great. You want to get into it? Let's get into it. The year roll, of wait, 1930. Roll, roll the intro. Oh, 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 we're rolling the intro first. You forget. I don't know the order in which we do things. <laughs> we roll the intro and then we go hello Are we revealing everyone. the winner yet? And welcome <laughs> to the ninth episode of I'd Like to Thank My Wife, where me, Tycho, is co-host. And me, E, Tycho's co-host. Go through every single best picture. I was going to say winner. Yes, technically, but also, yes, also every nominee from ever. like 1929 all the way up to now. Hell yeah. Yeah. And we've arrived in 1937, honoring the years, uh, the, the movies of 1936. Yes, exactly. The ninth Academy Awards held at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles on March 4th. Which is fascinating now that we know that they're going to be a March again this year. Oh. This year they were hosted by George Jessel. And funnily, this time we've actually got credit for the music, which was done by the Victor Young Orchestra with Spike Jones on the drums. Uh, so that's pretty cool. I love that. Yeah. So, this is a pretty a pretty big year. Okay. Because this year marks the introduction of the best supporting categories. Yeah. Supporting actor and supporting actress are here. And we've already seen, as well, the supporting actress winner. Oh, okay. Yeah. We're going to talk about her in a second. But Exciting. She's right in there. There, it was also the, the first year that the awards for directing and acting were fixed at five nominees per category. Sadly, they've not done this for Best Picture yet. <laughs> that, that was, get there. There's still ten and an imposter in there. But um, yeah, uh, directing and acting was all fixed at five. Five, 
That's so, nice. I yeah. prefer that above the random amount mm. of nominees. Yeah, because it was like three one year and then 20 the next. And yeah. It got, yeah. It's <laughs> confusing as shit. And now it's just like stuck at five. Five, yeah. So there was one movie here that we did not watch. And it would have been a great imposter, but I thought there's another imposter that I found more interesting and I didn't want to throw two imposters in there. Yeah, that's too much probably. Which is My Man Godfrey. And the reason that I found the other imposter to be more interesting is that this got four nominations, but all mm-hmm. four of them were acting categories. Oh! It w- was the first film ever to receive nominations in all four acting categories, but it didn't win any. Oh, that's so sad. Yep. <laughs> it um, It's the only such film to not receive a Best Picture nomination. It was also the only only one to lose all of its nominations until that happened again at the 23rd academy awards so we've got that's miles away and after that after that it didn't happen again until the 86th that's how rare of a occurrence this is oh so they tried yeah it is a sad sad little movie that i really quickly wanted to mention because Mm -hmm. I, i don't know Seems fun. William Powell's in there. Hey. Carol Lombard is in there. So yeah, it's a, it's a fairly fascinating movie. Just uh, not not fascinating enough for us. <laughs> nah. Ah. So yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay. Do I get to know what the imposter is an imposter for? Oh, yes. Yeah, so there is one imposter in here, and that is an imposter who won it won an Academy Honorary Award. Okay. And I'll give you I'll give you some uh, quick little things here. There's only one movie that won four awards. There's mm-hmm. two movies that won three awards. Okay. And there's no other multiple winners. Okay, gotcha. So two kind of big winners. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Of our 11 movies, only two of them have less than three nominations. So there's two that just could not have could not have won more than Okay, gotcha. Yeah. 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 Okay, well, I guess we'll get into the movies. Let's get into the movies. Yeah. Woo. Where what where do we start? I I'm I never know what Anthony Adverse. Anthony Adverse. Oh. Anthony Adverse. Well, now, that's not the strongest start, I don't think. Good that you say that. It is the worst reviewed movie ever nominated for best picture at 20% <laughs> on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh my so. god. Okay, I don't know if it was that bad. I also didn't think it was that bad, but uh, <laughs> to be fair, it's it's based only on 10 reviews, so it's quite a small sample size, but still. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, Anthony Edwards, it's a little bit hard to say what it's about. Yeah, I do you want to try and summarize? I feel, I feel like the easiest way to very quickly let people know why it's so difficult to summarize, it's based on a novel from 1933 mm. by Hervey Allen, and the novel essentially it, it contains three volumes and each volume mm-hmm. contains three books. It's 1,200 pages. Oh. And the movie's based on eight out of nine of those books. So that would essentially be like if someone tried to cram all of Lord of the Rings... Into one movie. Up to the bit where they reach Mount Doom into one movie. Uh, okay. I'm trying to remember what it's about because I very vividly remember Frederick March's face because mm. he, oh, was yeah. oh, he was in there. And I felt bad because... I've been praising him so much, and he was still good in this movie, but the movie was just not so good, so yeah. what can you do with a script that's kind of meh, right? Yeah. So, And his hair didn't do him justice either, so it was just not his best movie. It's, but, it's a thing with you, hair, isn't it? 
Yeah, hair. Yeah, it really is. It can make or break a character for me. <laughs> he can't wait for the best fucking makeup and hairstyling awards every every year. She's oh, God. <laughs> oh my God. Best. Yes, yeah. I'm such a professional in... Mm-hmm. Truly. But from what I remember, right, it's Anthony Edwards is a guy that yeah. is adopted because... Oh. Okay, so <laughs> his essentially mom. his mother is arranged married to like an asshole to an evil evil marquee which is it sounds so cartoonish but but he's an asshole so yeah. she kind of cheats on him yeah well she's not she's married to him but like in the sense of like mm, and it's not consumed and all that whatever and then yeah. her true love follows them to stay sort of near them and the marquee goes away to have like a he's i think he has like gout and he goes yes, to get he has cured gout. And while they he he's getting cured, he's go he's going to get cured for like three months, and they're like, oh, mm. oh, so we fucking while this dude is away, right? And uh-huh. then she gets pregnant. She gets pregnant with Anthony. Yeah, not like Anthony is the baby. No, he's Anthony's not the the, the dude. He's <laughs> no, no, no. In, yeah, Anthony yeah, yeah. is in the stomach right now. Uh, so this marquee comes back, fucking stabs the other dude. He's like, fuck, dude, you impregnated my wife, which I I, mm, I guess, and then. She dies giving birth to this kid. So mm-hmm. the Marquise is like, okay, <laughs> this is not my child. I'm I don't want to deal him. with this fucking kid. I'm dumping <laughs> him in the foundling wheel. He just puts him in the in the little <laughs> the baby basket at the convent. Yeah, but as fate has it, Anthony does end up at his grandpa. So yeah, like his actual mother's father. Yeah. And for some goddamn reason, they just explain it as, oh, yeah, the grandpa saw how he looked and he was like, yeah, this is my daughter's son, even though he was told that the child had died. So I'm sorry, but no, he just knows. I, you couldn't. A grandfather's love, you know? No, no, I'm so <laughs> sorry. But if you think a child is dead and it is now 12 years old, I'm sorry. There's no way you're going to be like, oh, this child looks so much like my daughter. It must be her child, even though, no. But anyway, this is like the first twenty minutes of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he finds a girl, falls in love with her, but miscommunication again. Yeah, so she he needs leaves, to go. and she's like, "Oh, he'll find me." I leave him a note, but she doesn't realize that when you leave paper outside, sometimes it blows away. away. <laughs> so he doesn't find the note, and he's like, "Oh, she's left me," and she's like, "Oh, he's left me," and yeah. it's all dramatic. And then there's a whole bunch of slavery. Yeah, he needs there's... to go on. <laughs> yes, he needs to go on a mission for his granddad, where he first goes to South America to get some money from someone that owes the grandpa money. But he isn't there. He is in South Africa or whatever. So yeah. he goes to South Africa, where he starts to own a what is it a slavery exchange or something sort of a a slave trading post yeah and he turns kind of evil but then he finds his wife again and he's happy no no no, you're skipping the part where he becomes evil and then sleeps with a slave which is shown to be like this this ultimate evil and then really yeah and then he's redeemed because he's friends with like a christian dude and with a priest (laughs) yeah, yeah and the priest is like Nah, you good fam. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this motherfucker think... goes home and then goes, 
oh i'm good oh my oh my oh my girlfriend's here it's like jesus yeah. christ his granddad also died in the meantime so trying oh, yeah. to earn money yeah, for him yeah. was completely useless it's so he, useless yeah and he he found his wife again and he's like oh my god and she had a child of his that he didn't know about and he's like oh my god this child. man sold his soul and so many slaves for yes. nothing yeah and then uh he finds out that the wife actually kind of has She's fucking Napoleon right now. Yeah, <laughs> straight so... up Napoleon Bonaparte is he gets cocked by Napoleon, and she yeah, essentially she's a famous singer now. Yeah, she just she's essentially <laughs> left him, <laughs> left him their child <laughs> with a little note on it saying, "No, nah, you should you should probably take care of this baby. Leave, and yeah. <laughs> just fuck off." <laughs> and, and he does. I didn't realize how stupid this movie was until we started summarizing it. It doesn't make any stupid. That's because it would make so much more sense if they actually like this is a it's three hour movie or something. It's ridiculously Mm -hmm. long, and yet it's way too short for this shit. Yeah, I think it's two hours even. No, one hundred and forty ish minutes. Okay, this is the ridiculously long one. No, that's a Siegfeld. Oh fuck! I forgot. Oh yeah, no, that (laughs) we'll get there. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's what the movie is about. I hope you enjoyed that summary. I know it sounds crazy, but that it is was. what it is. And somehow it's still kind of boring. Yeah. <laughs> Even with all of this happening, not much happens. <laughs> it's yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, but let me see if I wrote anything down besides what we already mentioned. I mean, as I said, Frederick March is really cool. Yeah, well, I'm glad you liked Frederick March. Uh, I'm just going to quickly pop in there because originally mm-hmm. it wasn't supposed to be Frederick March. Oh. They considered either Robert Donat, Leslie Howard, or George Brent. And they also wanted to cast Errol Flynn. Oh my god! To support him, not as actual, mm-hmm. uh, but to, uh, to support. But Errol Flynn got so popular after Captain Blood that they just gave him a star movie instead. Uh, to, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. And the kid who plays young Anthony, <laughs> his name is Billy, Billy Mouch, I think I, I'm saying that right. And... Warner Brothers found out that Billy had a twin brother called Bob. <gasps> Billy and Bob. Billy and Bob. And Warner Brothers was like, that's fucking genius. So they contracted them both and immediately sent them off to star in Prince and the Pauper. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yep. Like, immediately. It does also star Anita Louise, who we know as Titania from Midsummer Night's Dream last year. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she did do a lot of slightly silly movies. Yeah, she kind of is this person. She never really seems to have the main role, but she's there here and there. She's there. She does good, mostly. I I appreciate her. I had made some notes about the Marquis and how evil he is. It's very caricature, even. Like, he laughs very evilly when the child is born. Like, (laughs) oh, the child is born. And he starts laughing like a maniac. such a cartoon It's so creepy. It's not even like, oh, my God. What the fuck are those fake-looking trees outside the window? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. Even though I do love Frederick March, I'm so sorry. He was too old for this role because he is almost 40 and he's supposed to be, like, 20. Mm-hmm. At least the girl playing Angela is about 20. Olivia. And We've seen Olivia yeah. before. No, wait. Why did I put Angela? Who's Angela? <laughs> Oh, wait, you yeah, mean no. Olivia? Yeah, Oli- Olivia's the, the actress. Her. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's twenty. We've and seen her. She was in. Um, she was the girl from Captain Blood. You know, the child. Oh yeah, that makes sense. The child who yeah. was pitted against Errol Flynn. To be, yeah. <laughs> With the underwear. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Serpent. Yeah. No. So, I mean, it's not that uncommon to have a big age difference, but I felt in this one I could really notice that Frederick March was a little bit too old to play her opposite. But all right, it's not that uncommon, I guess. I also note down that French history is a very popular subject this year because there is at least one other movie that talks about it, but I think maybe even more. Um, yeah, possible. I know Louis Pasteur talks about it. I mean, the big one is uh, Tale of Two Cities. Oh, right, of course. Wow, yeah, we have Tale of mm-hmm. Two Cities together. Yeah, Louis Pasteur is also French, of course. Yeah. So, yeah, French, French history is, is quite a thing. Man, I want to go to a masked ball. <laughs> Don't we all, to be fair? To be fair, yes. And then finally I have one note that says, I don't entirely understand why Angela being Mademoiselle Georges means she can't be with Anthony. I suppose because they can't go against Napoleon's will. Yeah, you got well, it. Yeah, I won't go. Yeah, that's guns. <laughs> I love when you pose a question and then go, oh, I, maybe because of this and this. And, that and that's, why. yeah, you got it. Bingo. Have some more faith in yourself. You're really good at mm. interpreting these movies sometimes. Mm. Like, 50% of the time, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, like, when you're accurate, you're really accurate. But when you fuck mm. up, oh, you oh you fuck up. Like, <laughs> characters die yeah. suddenly. Yeah. <laughs> or two different dudes become the same dude. These are, like, both seven, eight episodes ago. I would never do this nowadays. No, 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 totally not. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have some fun facts on this. Uh, you? Yeah, love, love me some fun facts. So, first of all, uh, this movie was <laughs> mad fucking expensive. Ooh. They paid $40,000 for the screen rights alone. Oh. And then the film required 131 sets, including a 12-acre African compound built on the studio oh backlog, which God. is the largest set that had ever been constructed. Not by Warner Brothers, ever. I don't understand if you paid that much money for the script. Like, these days we have yeah. the problem of how many things are getting milked out, which is yeah. also bad. But can we find a balance? Because this is yeah, just... This is mad. Maybe you should have milked it a little bit yeah. more. And on top of that, because they had 131 sets, but they did then reuse the miniatures from Captain Blood. So, you know, economically, okay, really, good. really strong choice, you know? Uh, yeah, at the time, this was the most expensive Warner Brothers movie ever, and also their longest. Mm. So... Them. Not worth. Originally, the directing job was supposed to go to William Dieterle, but it instead went to Mervyn Leroy, who is Warner Brothers CEO uh, son-in-law. So you might have, oh. you might maybe have a little guess at how that came to be. Oh, that religious statue, the Saint Anthony, that Anthony Adverse is named after. Mm-hmm. He is patron of many things, but among those things, he is patron of lost things and lost people. Oh, wait, yeah. I think there's like a... We have a Dutch name for him. St. Antonius, probably. <gasps> yeah, but... Oh my god, my mom always talks about St. Antonius and how he oh. should help us find things. Oh, he should help you find... <laughs> I've lost my keys. St. <laughs> Antonius, please. Yes, yes, I think there's like a rhyme you can say. Heilige Antonius, beste vriend, maak dat ik mijn sleutels terugvind. That's ridiculous. <laughs> No, Anthony is gonna help. Um, Frederick Marx will help us find our <laughs> things. <you know. laughs> 
Yeah, next time I lose something, I'll say a little prayer to Frederick March. Good. Oh, my God. We're only one movie in. Um, so, the opera that they go through, the Duchess of Ferrara, that's a fake mm-hmm. opera that doesn't exist. But the composer in that opera on the poster is Aldo Franchetti. That's just the name of the actor who plays the conductor. Cute. Yeah. It's kind of I love it when they adorable. put crew references in there. Right, kind of adorable. Did you like um did you like the bitchy murky wife woman? She was fine. I don't know. I didn't really notice whether it, I didn't think she was very good or very bad. Like Okay, well, uh it was her first movie ever, Gail Sondergaard. Oh. She also cute. won Best Supporting Actress. Oh cute. immediately. So Glad you liked her. That was, Go uh, her. Yeah, she she did good. Frederick March and Olivia did win Oscars, just not for this movie. <laughs> um, oh. They both ended up winning two Academy Awards in their lives. But no. one of those, for both of them, was won in the same year, in 1946. They'll win Academy Awards together for different movies. Oh. But I do love that they're both going to be sticking around for a while. They're going to be good. We're going to have them for a bit. Now, I'd like to very quickly mention the score, because I thought the score was quite good. Mm-hmm. And everyone apparently thought the score was quite good. Oh. It was included in the American Film Institute's list of 250 movies nominated for the 100 Years of Film Scores. And oh, shit. also, maybe more notably, it won an Oscar. Oh. Though <laughs> Erich Wolfgang Korngold made the score... And the custom at the time was that it would be awarded to the music department, so it, he didn't actually get the Oscar. Hey, yo. It's okay, it's okay though, because next year he's going to win another one for Adventures oh. of Robin Hood, and he does get that one. So okay, it's all nice, good, it nice, balances nice. out. You know who also really liked this score? Not Hitler, not fucking Hitler. <laughs> Erich Wolfgang Korngold himself, because oh. because when he eventually wrote a violin concerto, he just grabbed the, th- the music from this movie and made that the initial theme of its second movement. So, <laughs> yeah, sure. We stand a recycling king, you know. Mm. So. Two more things before we head off. One is yeah. I really quickly want to mention Tony Curtis. I don't know if you know Tony Curtis. You no. will. We're going to see him a lot in a few years. He's a really big Hollywood actor. He named himself Tony after Anthony Curtis. This dude, or, or Anthony, uh, adverse. He mm. was born as Bernard Schwartz and then named himself Tony Curtis after Anthony Why? Adverse. Because uh, it was his favorite novel ever. To the extent where this dude was buried he was a fascinating man right so he was buried with a stetson hat an armani scarf driving gloves an iphone and a copy of the novel anthony adverse yeah i mean don't know why this is really i mean maybe the novel was much better based on the movie i wouldn't say i also wouldn't say why such a hardcore fan but that's because the good the, for him. The last thing that we're going to be doing for this movie is um, is that I'm going to read you a review from New York Times critic Frank uh-huh. Nugent. Nugent was a journalist, film reviewer, also a screenwriter. He wrote 21 scripts, 11 for oh. John Ford. So, you know, nominated for Academy Award. This dude knows about what writing, he's doing, right? Mm-hmm. And I normally don't really get into what our critics and reviews are up to, but I need you to know that this guy knows his shit because his review mm. is... Oh, God. It's something. I'm going to read word for word. Mm. Speaking for ourselves, 
We found it a bulky, rambling, and indecisive photoplay, which has not merely taken liberties with the letter of the original, but with its spirit. For all its sprawling length, the novel was cohesive and well-rounded. Most of its picaresque quality has been lost in the screen version. Its philosophy is vague, its characterization blurred, and its story so loosely knit and episodic that its telling seems interminable. A few years back, we devoted the better part of a British weekend to the reading of Mr. Allen's little pamphlet. I'm going to very quickly double check that you mm-hmm. caught little pamphlet in reference to a 1,200-page novel. Oh. <laughs> and we enjoyed oh. it. We spent the better part of a British weekend reading Mr. Allen's little pamphlet, and we enjoyed it. Yesterday, we spent only a fraction more than two hours watching its progress on the screen, and we squirmed like a small boy in Sunday school. Oh. So, yeah. That's not very good. It's not very positive. No. I get it, though. Yeah. Again, I don't think it was super, super bad, but it was just not it. No, it just wasn't it. Made hella bank, though. Yeah, I would hope it did. Yeah, it earned them <laughs> nearly, money nearly $2 million domestically. Oh, yeah, that's... And bank. then another nearly a million in foreign markets. Fair enough, fair enough. So, hey, worth it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess that's our next uh, next movie. Yeah. Dodsworth. Oh, God. I like Dodsworth. No. You didn't like Dodsworth? <laughs> no. I like Dodsworth a lot, actually. No. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, what happened? Oh, no. Dodsworth is about a married couple, but their marriage is, throughout the movie, falling apart because the woman named Fran, I think the core of the issues they're having is that she is a bit younger than him or quite a bit younger than him, and she wants to be young as well. She has a lot of trouble processing the fact that she's aging and yeah for example she doesn't want people to know that she has had a granddaughter she doesn't want them to know that she's a grandmother uh, now and yeah it just it's their marriage falling apart because of this and uh it's kind of frustrating to watch because a lot of times i put in my notes it's a really interesting topic i think like the fear of growing older mm-hmm. but they don't really get into her fear of it. So on the surface, it's mostly just her being a little bitch about it. <laughs> There's reason for this. We're going to go into in the fun yeah. facts. <clears throat> There's a reason they don't go into it more. And it's really okay. fascinating. Oh, I'm interested in that because I think that's what kind of ruined it for me. Because that's fair. they don't get into the real problem a lot. Yeah. Just to quickly summarize, they go on this trip together. Sam and Fran? Sam, yeah. Sam and Fran, yeah. They're on this boat, and essentially Sam meets a divorcee mm-hmm. called Edith, played by Mary Astor. She's a divorcee, and she she's really interested in him and, and his sort of way of life. And Fran flirts a little bit with a handsome young Englishman, but she obviously doesn't want to do anything serious there because she's married. Mm-hmm. And very consistently, she tries to have this consistent thing of like, oh, I want to be young. I want to, you know, yeah. uh, she wants to have you with this, this playboy dude. And he's like, yeah, I'll show you the world and everything. And Sam is just like, oh, I, you know, I'm here to see the usual touristy stuff and look at some cars. I'm pretty mm-hmm. content living, you know, a chill life. So she spends the summer alone in Europe. 
And Sam's like, yeah, that's a great idea because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I want to go home. I've had, an, I've seen it. It's cool. We're chill. But Fran cheats. Fran cheats massively, and Sam finds out, and Fran gets super sad and begs for forgiveness. And and Sam is a lovely boy, so he's like, yeah, sure, we'll give it another go. And this happens another two or three times where mm. she's like, oh, um, I found a dude who wants me, and he goes, I, I mean, okay. And she goes, never mind, the dude doesn't want me. Please take me back. Yeah. <laughs> Especially the last time. It's yeah. like she's going to get married with a younger guy. And they decide, okay, we'll get divorced. And Sam goes to Italy to see the divorcee that he met earlier on the boat, who he falls in love with. He, he doesn't go to see her. He just... He no, just... no, he just is in Italy and they uh, happen to see each other and then they start living together because... Uh, and yeah. he kind of finds his old flame back. Like he wants to do things again and stuff. It's, it's a really interesting one because he finds someone who's in that sort of same phase of life of like, I'm fine being mm-hmm. a bit older and I'm fine being settled and... I would like to travel, but, you know, with a purpose. I want to travel because I'm yeah. expanding my business and horizons and stuff, not just because I want to travel and party in Paris. Whereas yeah. Fran is very much like, I want to recapture my youth and I I don't mm-hmm. want that responsibility. Which is, both of these are very fair points of view, you know. Yeah, they just don't work together. They're not compatible, yeah. But Fran, the guy that she was going to marry, his mom is like, nah, ain't going to happen. And she cries and she calls Sam and is like, hey, well, let's not get divorced. And he's like, okay, I guess we won't get divorced. Uh, should should add, should add divorces against their religion. Religion's a True. big theme in these movies this year, yeah. so I, I'm going to bring it up every time because, God. Yeah, no, that's fair. <laughs> like, um, so at first, Sam is like, yeah, okay, we will not get divorced. I can't not do that if Fran asks me not yeah. to. But they are about to go back home to America and they're on the boat and Fran starts being a Fran's bitch being again. so horrible Oh my God, she's awful. It, like, the whole thing starts with her, yeah, I was kind of considering saying sorry to you for all the cheating I did and stuff, but you're kind of at fault too and he's like bitch what are you and he leaves the boat and goes to see the woman he actually loves this is the one quote that i have Mm -hmm. he leaves the boat only after telling her love has to stop somewhere short of suicide which is such a strong fucking quote like i love you to bits but you are actively making my life so much worse and Mm -hmm. i cannot justify doing that to myself because i love you and fuck i love when movies let breaking up be the healthy choice i'm not like anti-love yeah. or anything i'm a ve- you know me i'm I'm a hopeless romantic mm-hmm. but sometimes it is the healthier not option the, yeah not at the cost of everything yeah I, sometimes it is the healthier option and there's so many movies that go oh, and you should never break up it's the worst thing you could possibly do and it's like mm-hmm. no man fuck sometimes it's the right choice so you can go and live your best life in naples with a divorcee who the wants to love. see you succeed like <laughs> yeah. yes yeah, I agree on that. But um, I don't know. To me, Dotsworth was... It's one hour and 40 minutes. And it is a very long time to tell a story that just boils down to this marriage isn't working because she wants to be young and he uh, doesn't really care about all the new fancy shit. It drags in the middle for me, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't because it doesn't go too deep into it. For me, it was yeah kind of boring and i didn't really care for either of the characters because fran is being a bitch as i said and sam is a little bit more likable but he also doesn't hmm, it's like he doesn't 
really know how to communicate how he's feeling about all of it. So, for example, when he goes back home and they spend the summer apart, he starts being an asshole to his family because he's frustrated with the way his marriage is going. So everyone has to deal with the fact that he's just frustrated with other people. And uh, because I didn't really like either of the main characters... It was That's also fair. watching a movie that was like, I don't care. I don't fucking care. Stop That's being fair. married and just divorce and end. I, I love this one because I find that type of character study a really interesting thing, right? Yeah. Of like, what if these two people who clearly do love each other but just have such different views on life and they keep mm. trying to make it work and it doesn't work and it's never going to work. When are they going to see that it's never going to work? I find it such an interesting thing. Yeah. So yeah, I I I like this a lot. I can definitely see that. Do you have any notes or do you want to... I'll quickly check, but I think most of it is just me being frustrated. <laughs> I mean, that scans. Divorce her. Divorce her! <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> okay, so some fun facts. I'm going to start with some quick ones. This is the first time in the Hayes production code that we've seen a man walk out of his marriage and not get punished for it. Yeah, that is kind of on the fence, I'd say. Yeah, it's very. I'm very proud of them. Well done. It's based off of a stage play based off of a book. Okay. And it's fairly accurate to that. Houston, or Walter Houston, sorry, who plays Samuel Dodgeworth, he reprised his stage role. He did the stage adaptation as well. And they that just got sense. him back for this. Yeah, there weren't really any actors we already new here which i kind of liked as well it's nice seeing recurring actors but it's also i think in general this year was a nice balance between new actors and actors we already knew like some of the movies would have completely new casts and some of them would have the good old guys the good old gang yeah this movie specifically is really fascinating in its cast because it it has five oscar winners or would-be winners in walter houston paul lucas mary astor david niven and william wyler and three Oscar nominees in Ruth Chatterton, Spring Byington, and Maria Uspenskaya. So Jesus. it's star-studded. And on top of that, it was directed by William Wyler, who got a Best Director nomination for this, which is the first of 12 Best Director nominations that he got, which, at f- last I checked, is a record. What? 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 <laughs> Yeah, and it's like ten percent of all the Academy. Awards. I know 12, 12 nominations, three of which he won. That is a ridiculous number. Yeah, what the fuck? So the fact that we got th- this is a uh, wow. Yeah, this is the first. This is the first. This is where it started for him. This is his, his shit. Oh, so yeah. Um, he also did. You're gonna, you know, he did Ben Hur, nineteen fifty nine Ben Hur. Oh, so we're okay. gonna we're gonna get to him, but uh, yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> this was the uh, the joint first to be nominated for both Best Actor and Best Supporting Actress. My Man Godfrey was the other one, obviously, mm-hmm. but this one got both as well. Uh, yeah, this film was shot entirely on studio, but a camera crew was sent to London, Paris, Vienna, Montreux, and Naples for background shots that they could project behind the sets to recreate the European tour. Oh, that makes sense. William Wyler, the director, knew most of the locales from personal travels so he gave them minutely detailed instructions about the kind of shots he wanted but then most of them were rejected in the final cut to keep the film from feeling like a travel documentary so only those <laughs> crucial to the story survived oh yeah so let's get to everything that's going on behind the scenes 
And I'm going to start with William Wyler. William Wyler was a, I mean, 12 nominations. He was a very detailed director. Uh, He spent a whole afternoon, for instance, shooting that scene where Fran burns the letter from her husband because he Mm -hmm. very specifically wanted the letter to blow gently along the terrace, then stop and then continue to flutter uh, as a metaphor for the marriage. And he spent a whole afternoon just redoing and redoing and redoing and redoing. No. And this led to some... Arguments. (laughs) Arguments. David Niven later said that he was bloody miserable working with William Wyler. He described him as a Jekyll and Hyde and a son of a bitch to work with. (laughs) He conceded that Wyler was kind, fun, and cozy offset. uh, Niven said, and I quote, he became a fiend the moment his bottom touched down in his director's chair. (laughs) Oh, God. The early Stanley Kubrick, huh? Yeah, for real. Oh, fucking phenomenal. And William Wyler fought pretty much daily with Ruth Chatterton on the characterization of Fran, Mrs. Dodsworth. Mm -hmm. Because he thought that it was too black and white. He wanted to add some subtleties, like, you know, the fear of getting older and, and all that. Yeah. And Ruth Chatterton vigorously disagreed with that she wanted this woman to be played as a straight villain she did not want that depth of this no, this woman scared girl. of getting older and trying to hang on to her youth and mary astor wrote later in her memoirs chatterton's character was that of a woman trying to hang on to her youth which was exactly what ruth herself was doing it touched mm. a nerve the ruth at this point is 43 so she's far from old but she's well past the age when actresses typically enjoyed you yeah. know that big audience appeal so she was a really big star once and that that was kind of waning now and she was apparently self-conscious to the point where she insisted on daily facials to maintain a youthful glow oh so the fact that wyler really wanted that interpretation of it's this woman trying to hang on to her youth and fearing mm-hmm. getting older and becoming irrelevant that sort of hit a nerve yeah but then you that would be such a good reason to act it out really oh, yeah, well because only, you can relate to the character. It would if you're not massively in denial about it. Yeah. Right? That's the oh. thing. And this manifested as just, just hatred and fear towards Weiler. And the fact that you know, his consistent multiple takes, that's already slightly frustrating if that's not something you're mm-hmm. used to. So it just adds. And at one point, apparently, she slapped the director's face and locked herself what? in her dressing room. Girl, Madam was pissed. Just to quickly wrap up this specific bit, she was... That's the worst part of this whole thing, right? Is that she was kind of right. Mm -hmm. This was her final American film. Right. So she, she did. She just waned from popularity after this. And I don't know, it's kind of tragic. That is tragic. Yeah. But still, it could have been so good if she hadn't. It really could have been. It also, I guess, insult to injury with that one scene where um, Fran celebrates that birthday where she claims she's turning 35. Yeah. And she remarks that she hopes to look as young as Edith when she turns her age, implying that she's much older than 35. Astor was 30, Mary Astor, who plays Edith, and Chatterton was 43, where it's like... Mm. 
the whole thing is very yeah on top of that kurt's mom saying no to them marrying because yeah she is older she basically goes like yeah no that's probably a bad idea because my son is much younger than you and you're old so fuck off i can imagine as an actress who's already like struggling with this this just being so close to home yeah she shouldn't have taken on that job probably yeah on a more positive note weiler and houston were buddies no yeah best buds they started filming after weiler spent christmas with houston's family um they were friends who worked really well together because they had these like their ideas about screen acting mesh really well i quote weiler notes no acting ruses no acting devices just the convincing power that comes from complete understanding of a role and yeah they were really nice to each other yeah let's go on top of this mary astor was struggling because she had a very public child custody hearing Ooh, she had been divorced because her husband her ex-husband used her diaries to prove that she'd been having an affair with george kaufman the playwright yeah that's painful the diaries were destroyed so they couldn't actually be submitted as evidence but this was such a a public and, and scandalous thing that you know once the public gets a hold of it so the press was like constantly stalking her and she sometimes slept on the set to avoid that confrontation like she Aww. slept in her bungalow but well yeah and coincidentally you know her character is a divorcee so it's all very very close to home many people in the production though sided with her throughout the ordeal including william wyler samuel goldwyn and ruth chatterton who actually went to court with her and appeared as a character witness Aww. legend that's cute. Yeah, she wrote in her memoirs that Edith was the favorite role she's she's ever played, reflecting that she sort of channeled that struggle into the role. Mm. I quote, when I went into court and faced the bedlam, that would have broken me up completely. So I kept the little pot boiling that was Edith Courtright. Oh. So great stuff behind the scenes of this movie. Yeah. Both great in the sense of happy stuff and both great in the sense of... Interesting. Interesting, Yeah quickly checking if i have anything else here but i think oh i have one to end it on actually perfectly Mm -hmm. because mary astor i think also in her um in her memoirs wrote that she really enjoyed working with william wyler finding him to be an inspirational director tough and exacting but sensitive and she especially appreciated how he ended the film on a close-up of her not strictly out of vanity but just from the awareness that the audience would enjoy having the story end on the high note of edith's happiness radiance at seeing sam return to her oh i love that that is a good good vibes last. all around yeah that's yeah. a good last fact i mean she did still have an affair um not great yes of course not defending that part but you know doesn't mean you should be followed by the paparazzi yeah exactly what she did is you know shit obviously but there's a level of privacy that i think yeah every just let it be handled in court yeah so but that does move us on to the garden of allah the garden of Listen, there's one very specific thing about the Garden of Ella. One very... Is it the, um, is it the racism? No, it's not oh, the racism. Oh. Well, that's not good. <laughs> Wait, you make me sound bad. It's the color. Oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's I'm the color. Sorry, how is there, if there's one thing you're going to say about <laughs> Garden of Ella, right. <laughs> is it it's not the, the fact 
That's the first movie that we've watched for this podcast that is color. This is the first color movie we watched for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Shit, you're right. I just hated this movie. <laughs> I hated this movie so much that it just, just it just I just forgot. How? How do you forget the first movie? We <laughs> I don't color? know. They just all blend together. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> My nose just start with, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, color. It's happening. Stay calm, everybody. Stay calm. Money Dietrich, in color. Bezel phone, in color. I was freaking out. And halfway through, I went, dog in color. There's a dog in color. There's color. If only it was actually good. Well, yeah, that would have helped. That would have been nice. I quite enjoyed the black and white. Oh, you mean yeah? Yeah, it was a, it was a specific vibe, and I'm not sure. You know, it's also specifically very early color, where it's super interesting to see, right? And I was very excited to see it, and it's nice in the sense of you know seeing color is just nice, but it's yeah. not the prettiest kind of color. No, that it's not. It, it's it's three strip technicolor. It's um, it was originally mostly used for shorts or finale sequences, like House of Rothschild at the end. That was mm-hmm. three strip technicolor. It was mostly short things, and this was, I think, the third feature film ever to be filmed entirely in Technicolor. Yeah, I read that as well. Yeah, there was two before that. It was Becky Sharp and Dancing Pirate uh, in Mm. 1935 and 1936 specifically, but the Oscars didn't care that much about them two. But this one, yeah. This one? This one. Importante. It's... As you said, it's not a good movie by any means. Mm. Uh, mm. It's uh, it's a bad movie, in fact. But oh, mm. the fact that it's a color kind of did make up for it a little bit. Not in the sense that I was much more amused or entertained. But well, to really give, quickly give you... Like, if we were to have taken any of the other movies, uh, one of them would have been Becky Sharp, which is about a lower-class girl who pushes herself into an upper-class family... And then sees her entire life and those around her destroyed, which does sound Ooh. quite interesting. But I feel like Parasite two thousand nineteen <laughs> for real. Uh, or the other <laughs> one would have been Dancing Pirate, which honestly I might still watch. I'm only going to give you the first line of this, which uh-huh. is oh sorry I'm no sorry I'm going to give you the first three lines of this. Mm-hmm. A dance teacher from Boston is enslaved by pirates, but escapes when the pirate ship lands in Spanish California. The local authorities mistake him for a pirate and sentence him to death, but his execution is delayed in order for him to give dance lessons to the local women. (laughs) That's ridiculous. We can watch this in color. (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad. (laughs) So I might still go and hunt that one What were the Oscars doing? Because this one... I don't know, man. I don't know why. We could have had the other two. These past yeah. two episodes, we could have been watching those instead. But no, 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 no. Here we are. No. The Garden of Allah. It's... Okay. It's about... Irene. Irene? I- Irene? No. Is that not Marlene Dietrich's character's name? Oh, no. That No, sorry. That's the dancer. No, yeah, that's isn't the dancer. it Domini? Domini and... <laughs> Irene is like she's so late in the movie as well and it's not Irene it's Irina oh. <laughs> I, I clearly was not paying full attention to, to be me. fair I understand because it sucks so much 
Okay, Dominie and Boris. Dominie is very religious and she travels to... Rem- I forgot where she travels. Remember that she's religious because it's all the movie's about. Yes. Where where did she travel to? The desert. The desert. Yeah, did I, did <laughs> I ever specify where in the desert? Um, I think I think it's like... Hang on, I'm going to grab the Wikipedia for this. She is in the city Azur. Uh, it's the it's the solitude. Essentially, a nun goes. You need to find you the, yeah. in the solitude of the Sahara Desert. You might find yourself. But there is no solitude because she meets a man. She meets and so they many fall people. Fall in love, yeah. but Boris, the man, has a deep secret, and we do not get to know about it for the first three quarters of the movie. It's yep. this whole mystery that they're building up to. Oh. You kind of know it has something to do probably with a monastery in, I think, South Africa. Because the first scene yeah. is about how a monk there escaped. Yeah. Um, Basil Rathbone shows up. He Won't does. not really go into his characters because he's not that important in the grand scheme of things. But I did love to see him in color because I love this guy. Oh, he's a great Amazing. Dude. I fucking love Basil oh. Rathbone. We're going to talk about him again in yes. a second and I'm, I'm really really excited because i have such Hell a fun yes. fact about him um yeah. so yeah nice i love Basil rathbone he's having a really good year because i think he's including in this one he's in three movies yeah i think so so he's doing great but yeah domini and boris decide to get married because 1930s they decide to get married after knowing each other for a week because they're deeply in love and they travel more into the desert and they're she finds out that he is the monk that ran away and she's like we can't do this we can't do this you're a, we can't you can't be married you're a monk you can't be married that's against like my religion and he he says yeah you're right and he goes back to the monastery yeah. and they divorce <laughs> yeah. i guess just... i don't know if they even divorce but like no, they no. she <laughs> just leaves him there off. and they <laughs> he just it's only like an hour so and five minutes and still stupid. it was too long it's so stupid <laughs> it's so stupid ah! <laughs> yeah oh yeah also marlene dietrich love her color does not look that good on her especially with the style oh, yeah. of the very thin eyebrows and everything mm-hmm. In color, you can kind of sometimes see how they got rid of her actual eyebrows yeah. and it doesn't look great. Mm. And the color, I don't know, the yep. free strip Technicolor just doesn't really no. look that good on her. It doesn't. For the fucking, fucking Basil Rathbone, though. Yeah. Yes, Hell sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. Mm. The eyebrows also don't really help with the acting because no, no matter what she does, she looks surprised permanently. <laughs> like, why would you... It's such a bad idea for acting to put one form of eyebrow because she can't look... <laughs> she can't look any specific... She can't give a specific expression because of this. It's so stupid. It's like that fucking Doctor Who scene where it's like, oh, I was on a planet where they only communicate with their eyebrows and then they said something that surprised me, so I raised them. But apparently, in their language, that was super offensive. So now I'm a wanted criminal. <laughs> and it's like, that's her face the whole time. Constantly. Constantly. Yes. It's 
poor woman did not <sighs> do her justice. And that well, she's she's so good. She's so great. I enjoy her movies mostly. I loved her in the Shanghai Express, but yeah. it is not so much. It's not really her fault, though. No, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. It's definitely not her fault. This is, <laughs> everyone involved in this movie behind the scenes is one hundred percent was a to victim. Blame. <laughs> 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 also, put down. The movie is kind of boring, though. It's been 30 minutes of Domini just going, I want to go to the desert. And Boris going, I have a deep secret. I am so wounded. That's just the entire movie. Yeah. And then a little bit of Basil Rathbone and that's it. Um, Yeah. At this point, I shouldn't be surprised anymore. But my God, they clearly shouldn't be marrying with the amount of mystery and unhappiness surrounding especially Boris. He clearly has this deep secret and you don't think maybe I should know. I don't know if she even noticed that he had a secret. Yeah, I think she did because they t- she talked about it with the priest at the desert place. It's also one of these great fucking things where I'm so glad these characters don't know they're in a movie. Because if they knew they're in a movie, then she would realize that she's in the desert looking for salvation. This is a dude she's met in that desert who has a big secret. And the only other plot point we have is that a monk ran away from a thing. I yeah. wonder how these are going to connect in 20 minutes. Like, <laughs> it's... In combination with the magic predictor, what do you call those? The seer? Yeah. yeah. There's a seer as well. <laughs> yeah, there is. <laughs> so he predicts very early on in the movie, I think maybe 15 minutes in yeah. or so, he predicts, well, you're going to find happiness for a bit, but then something very bad is going to happen to you. And she's like, oh, well, that's okay. It will be worth it as long as I'm happy for like one second. And she walks away and doesn't care. It's, it's like, so <laughs> stupid. It's so stupid. <laughs> i'm so uh, disappointed this is the first color movie we see and it's probably gonna be like our number 11 oh 100 it's gonna be my number 11 there's, there's <laughs> nothing here as offensively shit as this movie yeah because it's also as you that was the first thing you remembered the racism it doesn't look great on well anyone <laughs> you know how there's a bunch of scenes where they speak in arabic Oh, yeah, that's not Arabic, is it? No, it's not even close, no. No, it's Ooh. just, that's just people just <laughs> making things. shit up on oh, the spot. No. Yeah, it's bad. It's not, mm. Um, I'm going to quickly do a quote. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, yeah, no, no, no. Uh, Domini goes, What an extraordinary man. Is he mad? And the guy next to her goes, Yes, he's undoubtedly English. <laughs> I mean, ouch, but right, correct. <laughs> yeah. Shall I, shall I give you some fun facts? Yeah, yeah. Let's start with the actual fun facts. Marlene Dietrich's daughter is in this movie. One of the young Dude. girls doing needlepoint uh, in the first scene at the convent. That's her daughter. So that's, No, I love that. That's nice. That's good. George Cukor at some point was going to direct this movie. And Joan Crawford was going to be in the leading role. And then both oh. of them said, mm, maybe not. Which I think objectively was the correct choice. The good choice yeah. they knew. <laughs> they, well, they felt that shit from miles off. You're going to love this fun fact. This movie was originally budgeted at $1.6 million. Ooh. However, it went over budget by what? an estimated $370,000. That $370,000... <laughs> 
ended up being roughly the size of the loss that this movie had at the box office. Oh. How bad? How bad do you have to be for people to see color for almost a... Like, this is the <laughs> the first, third one of the first movies you could ever color. see with had to have color in it and still audiences decided to not go. Like, that's inc- that's impressive, <laughs> honestly. It's fucking hilarious to me. What? Holy shit, dude. I, How do you lose money on something like this? To... That's as if the jazz singer would have not made any money. Like, oh my god. Yep. Um, I'll give you a, a quick review from the time. We're not the only ones. Graham Greene from The Spectator gave it a very neutral review. Because he really liked the surrealism of the film. He found it really magnificent. And he noted that dialogue had a distinctly apocalyptic tone, which was very closely matched by Dietrich's delivery of her lines. I don't disagree with him. I think yeah, it's, fair enough. the surrealism's good. And that the dialogue was pretty interesting. Mm. Not good, interesting. Yeah. One final fun fact to send us off to the next movie, which is that, uh, you know, Cindy Lauper? Mm-hmm. S- singer of Time After Time? I have no idea what that is. I'm going to send you the video clip, actually, and I want you to... Okay. I want you to see if you maybe recognize anything in there. She's also the singer of Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Hey, the video clip has... Has it in. Has yep. Garden of Allah. For the first little over half a minute of this music video, it's just Cindy Lauper... Watching, watching Garden of Allah. That's so. Sp- Why were you doing that, girl? I don't know. Maybe she's just like this is one of the greatest love movies ever. I don't know why Cindy Lauper liked this movie so much, but it's in there. So, or maybe the music video director liked it so much. That's also possible. Which to concerns be fair. me. The music video can be much good if that is the case. But mm. well, it's in color, so maybe that was the inspiration. <laughs> He was like, oh my god, we're gonna do color. Let's do the third movie ever that did color. I think we need to move on as swiftly as humanly fucking possible. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Next up is The Great Siegfried. This is a long, long movie. It was three hours. But it was good. I enjoyed those three hours. I was like, I started off going, three hours, there's no way that I'm gonna enjoy this a lot because. But. No, it was nice. It was I liked it. I liked it. Yeah. It's a biopic. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it should have been three hours probably because there's big parts that are just performances. And I did think those were a little bit too long because they also kind of got me out of the story. It feels mm. like you're watching a story, then you're watching just a performance for half an hour, and then suddenly you're thrown back into the story. Yeah. Th- this is sort of 1936 Tick Tick Boom worse but in the sense yeah. that it's a biopic while at the same time being a musical adaptation um mm-hmm. which is a really it's a really fascinating combination but it it puts in a little bit too long of the dance performances yeah. for me because it kind of takes you out of the story you get back to the story and you're like wait we're d- we were doing something else right right i forgot about that but yeah. that being said it was really fun it is about the man Ziegfeld who yeah is the creator Florence. of the Follies, if that tells you anything. <laughs> um, Ziegfeld Follies. 
for those of you unaware, a series of elaborate theatrical review productions on Broadway. Like this was a really big Broadway thing, mm-hmm. ran for 30 years in the early 1900s, and then a bunch of renewals up until like the late 50s. This was a this was yep. a big thing. So it was a really big thing, apparently. Yeah, and this is just a biopic. This is just about this dude's life. Mm-hmm. There's not much there to summarize, other than yeah, he gets a wife at some point. He yeah. has a rival that is a rival, but at the same time is a friend. Yeah, he kind of has a friend rivalry with this guy going on, where the guy does give him money sometimes whenever he needs it to start a new show, but at the same time, they both started off by trying to kind of get customers from each other at the circus because yeah, he started exactly. at a circus. Um yeah, it features William Powell who we know from the Finn Man. He was yes. not the Finn Man, but, but he was the, the he, but he was the Finn Man. He was he was <laughs> um, who would later be the Thin Man, but not the Thin yeah. Man in that movie, but in the sequels he would be the Thin Man. Yeah, and he got matched up with Myrna Loy I'm very again glad to see well. Myrna Loy again, yeah. Yes, I love her. God, I love um, Myrna Loy. What a woman. Yeah, she was also his wife in The Finn Man. And in this movie, she is his second wife because he does get a divorce from his first wife. More divorce, which is impressive. Yeah. yeah. The first wife he had was a woman who he kind of discovered, this French singer. And it was the first big star that he produced, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But things kind of got out of hand when she thought that he cheated. But he didn't. It was basically mm. just a woman forcing herself onto him but um you know the first wife happened to see and was like i'll divorce him and that will make him come back to me but it didn't he was yeah. like well yeah she divorced me so she doesn't want, Clearly, uh, want yeah. anything to do with me anymore so i'm gonna get a new wife and the first wife is distraught by this and I'm mm. like, her, her name was uh, anna held which is relatable anna, i yeah. also anna be held um anyway anyway should note about anna held that ziegfeld was never actually married to her in real life oh just so we're aware why they put that in then that's weird Mm, who's to say one of the big things this was such a eye-opener eye-opener it was i was just shocked okay because Mm -hmm. i didn't know that fanny bryce was a real person I thought that was a fictional character from Funny Girl. And suddenly she was (laughs) there. (laughs) She's real. She played herself. Yeah, that was really cool. (laughs) She was a bit too old probably to play herself because she played herself, but then from 20 years ago. So you could see that she'd already grown Mm -hmm. a bit older. But yeah, I was just so shocked. I was like, wait, excuse me. What the fuck? Yeah. No, she was a Penny real. Penny Bryce, she was real a real person. A true, a true woman. That's crazy. I put down. Oops, fraud. I don't really remember what, where oops, the fraud comes in. Fraud. Oops. Oops. Right, there was a blackface in there. So, um, just to be clear, not, not liking that. Not good. No, no. Who was Florence? Oh, Florence is uh, Ziegfeld. But I, in my notes, I keep putting him by his first name. <laughs> mm-hmm. He is a really interesting character, actually. He is, yeah, yeah, You kind of do root for him, but he's also very manipulative in everything that he does, basically. Which very. Maybe you have to be in the kind of show business that he was in and how big he was. But, ooh, he's very good at twisting words in a way where other characters will be like, oh, yeah, no, you make sense. Yeah, I will sign with you. 
Yep. Yeah, no, this other guy that was I was going to sign with now sounds bad. Like, of course I'm going to sign with you. He even gets the first, and I held, he gets signed. Even though he says, I have no money. I have absolutely no money that I can pay to you right now, but I'll make you a star. And he gets her to believe it. It's crazy. He has yep. a lot of convincing power. He mm -hmm. must have had a lot of chemistry in real life. Yeah. The shows are super fancy. Mm, mad fancy. A bit slow sometimes. I like the dancing ones quite a bit, but the Follies parts of it, or at least the first one I think he puts up, is mostly just very impressive set pieces and very impressive dresses, which is cool to see for a bit, but it drags. Yep. <laughs> you know that little, that big birthday cake, basically, with all the people on it? God, it takes so long before they get around that whole thing. Mm-hmm. As I said, I feel like the shows kind of take you away from the story for a bit. So maybe it would have benefited from doing something like 42nd Street, where the first part is the story and then they go into the shows. But then mm. again, doesn't really work for this movie because they want to keep it linear and it does end with his death. So you're not going to put his shows after that, I guess. Yeah. Mm, I was kind of upset for Anna, even though she didn't make any sense. If you're gonna divorce him, I don't know why you expected him to come back. But no, but she, she was, was sweet. She was a vibe. Yeah, yeah, I liked her, so I did feel bad for her. Mm -hmm. I can't believe Billings, the arch nemesis kind of guy, is still Florence's friend after all the success Florence stole from him. He a real bro. Mm. And then I went. Pretty okay movie. Shows take a little bit too long and the story isn't super special, but I did care a lot for the characters, which helps a lot. And yeah, that's it. I like nice. it. It's a fascinating movie in the sense that it's, you know, very not accurate. Oh no, okay. There was a few, like, really, really accurate things, but uh, a mm. lot of it was made up to, to sort of, I don't know, sanitize it a bit, I suppose. Mm -hmm. just as a very quick example and there's a lot of these but i'm not going to go through all of them but ziegfeld definitely did not die in his room at the hotel Ooh. he died in los angeles he didn't even spend his last years anywhere near new york huh. yeah but there's a lot of stuff in that is accurate for instance uh his belief that elephants were a symbol of good luck that's a thing that he actually did and so Cute. it's a really weird mix of really accurate accuracy stuff and, and stuff. random stuff okay yeah but one of the things that is very accurate is the crazy amount of debt he was in by the end <sighs> which made this movie happen oh because Ziegfeld's widow, Billy Burke, was very keen to pay off his debts without filing for uh -huh. bankruptcy, so she sold the rights to a biopic to Universal. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. Pretty smart. Yeah, it's pretty good. She was listed as a, as a co-author with McGuire, but then by, like, 1935, they'd fallen into disagreement with Universal over financial problems at the studio, so the entire mm -hmm. production was sold to MGM for $300,000. Ooh. And MGM took over, and they, they, oh my god, they blew money on this. More than Ooh. $2 million, Ooh. which is $42.5 million in, in 2022 dollars. Sheesh. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's the most expensive film they made after Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ in 1925. Hmm. Uh, many of the actual theatrical Ziegfeld Follies were cast in the film with themselves, such as, indeed, Fanny Bryce and Harriet Hochter, mm. and real Billy Burke was a supervisor. The set for Pretty Girl is Like a Melody alone was reported to have cost about $220,000, oh with a towering, rotating volute of 70 feet diameter, with 175 spiral steps weighing 100 tons. That's the cake. Yep. 
the extravagant costumes, and I'm, I'm reading this directly, were designed by Adrian. That's just his name. Adrian Adolf Greenberg, but his name was just Adrian. That was his art name. No. He also I did costumes that. for Wizard of Oz, so we're going to get there. Right. But these costumes took about 250 tailors and seamstresses, about six months to prepare. That doesn't surprise me. It was very extravagant. Using 50 pounds worth of silver sequins. 23 kilograms of sequins. And uh, 11 meters of white ostrich plumes. Oh my god. Yep. Over a thousand people were employed in the production of this film. And after cutting, it was 16 reels long. God. This movie was... Massive. Gargantuan. Essentially, the reason that this movie is so long is they wanted to preserve as much footage as possible because they spent so much money on this. In fact, in advertising for the film, MGM bragged that it was so big that only MGM could handle it. So they really used this to push themselves up. Fair enough. I guess it was true at the time. So Probably, yeah. Yeah, and it was very extravagant. So if you want to appeal to audiences with that do your thing i guess yeah casting wise it was fairly fascinating because obviously you know a bunch of um like original folly stars were cast uh, but on top of that there was william powell as Siegfeld, mm-hmm. and he admitted to being amazed with it after viewing it he was very grateful at having had that privilege to portray him he said in quotes after seeing this film i can see that most of the characters i've played before were contrived They had no folks, as the character of Siegfeld had in this picture. Their father was a pen, and their mother a bottle of ink. Here was a character with flesh, blood, and sinews. I felt for the first time in my acting career I had tried the full measure of a man, regardless of my shortcomings in playing him. So this is a really big role for him. Yeah, I can kind of see that. I mean, obviously, I've only seen The Thin Man before this, but I can see the comparison, whereas in The Thin Man, he was great, and I loved that movie, but... He doesn't have a lot of depth as the no, detective. No, he was, he was a character. He was a vehicle for the story. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. And here it's definitely, it's a real person and they wrote it as a real person. Absolutely, so. yeah. So there's some conflicting uh, thoughts on Billy Burke because some people say that she objected to her role being cast with another actress, in this case Myrna Loy, because Burke mm-hmm. was also an actress under contract at that studio. She could play herself. Oh. But the producers concluded that at that point she was not a big enough star to play herself. You can't play yourself. You're not big enough. Okay. Yeah, well, according to Emily W. Leiter, Burke was never keen on playing her younger self. Okay. And Billy Burke's biographer stated that Miriam Hopkins would have been her first choice, not Loy. So she wasn't necessarily pissed that she couldn't play herself. She just didn't want Myrna Loy to do it. But Miriam Hopkins is doing great. And I'm kind of surprised because I didn't like her that much. Yeah, right? To be fair, I also remember we saw her mostly, what I remember from at least, is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde yeah, from 1941. she didn't get to do a lot. She didn't get to do a lot. And I think that was her first movie or one of her first Yeah, one movies, of her first so she movies. she probably yeah. grew into it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's... Uh... Fascinating. So you know the character Sally Manners in the movie? No. I think it's one... Oh, well, it's... It, okay. <laughs> okay, well, next fun fact. <laughs> cool, done. No, as she was based on a woman called Marilyn Miller, but Marilyn Miller and another dancer called Lillian Lorraine threatened legal action if their names were so much as mentioned in the film. Ooh. So they renamed them to Sally Manners and Audrey Dane instead of... Yeah, we would definitely never know that those are the same person. No, no clue. No clue whatsoever. But the reason for this is that in real life, Siegfeld apparently 
was obsessed with Miller, reportedly, and was involved in numerous sex scandals. And in 1922, Miller, Miller had given an interview in which she accused him of making love to chorus girls and sending her a diamond ring as big as her hand. Uh, so, Ooh. yeah. Yeah. I get why they didn't put that in a movie because it doesn't make your character very likable. But no. I also don't know about making movies about people that do questionable things. Yeah. Uh, sadly, she died due to complications after a nasal surgery just before the release of the film. Mm-hmm. So one reviewer writing in Liberty had to denounce an urban legend, writing, and I quote, It's not true that Marilyn Miller died of a broken heart at not getting the lead in this movie. No, of course it was. Okay. <laughs> of course. I didn't think that was, you know, that needed saying. Saying, but thanks anyway. <laughs> Great stuff. A funner fact is that Pat Ryan is in this movie. She's an extra in this movie. That name probably doesn't mean much to you. Mm-hmm. It might mean more to you when I tell you that she would later become Pat Nixon, wife of Richard Nixon and first lady of the United States. Oh my god. <laughs> so That's so random. It is, isn't it? I love that. <laughs> Myrna Loy, who received second billing for this film, does mm-hmm. not appear on screen for the first two hours and 15 yep. minutes. That's true. <laughs> Which I didn't really think about, but seeing it written down, that is ridiculous. Poor woman who played Anna Held, because she had a much bigger role. Yeah, no second billing for you. Get wrecked. To be fair, even she wasn't in for maybe the first three quarters of the movie because it really takes a long time to get to the place where Siegfeld starts doing things other than circus. Yeah. Eugen Sando in this movie is portrayed as a typically dumb strongman. In real life, he was highly intelligent. This dude has on his gravestone the father of bodybuilding because he's one of the first people to display his muscular body as a work of art. And he was friends with Arthur Conan Doyle Thomas Edison and King Edward the Seventh. What? So, highly intelligent, and the movie just goes, uh, "Big, strong, dumb uh, boy." Big, big guy. So yeah. Despite the inaccuracies, though, I feel like we've had this discussion before, where we both agree, as long as it keeps the spirit alive, which yeah. I think it did, except that maybe Siegfeld was. A little bit more of an asshole than they said, but <laughs> exactly, it was more of a more of a rocket man than a Bohemian Rhapsody. Rhapsody, sorry, mm. in in that aspect where yeah, yeah, there were some inaccuracies, but at least they got his character mostly right. They downplayed the infidelities a bunch, but that's also because you know his wife was making sure that they didn't yeah. smirch his good name. Whereas you know it, it wasn't so much a, oh we need to tell a really interesting story and the accuracies don't really matter. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it did really good. Vanita Varden's costume caught fire during filming, but while she was in the dressing room. Two of her fellow actresses helped extinguish the flames. So it's all good. It's all good. So there's a bunch of stuff that was censored because of the Hays Code, like the Siegfeld Follies themselves, which had a lot of nudity and subject matter, so they couldn't really be accurately depicted. But beyond that, they did surprisingly all right. And later in 1936, same year but later, they made a very faithful film version of Showboat, which was one of the one of Siegfeld's um, Siegfeld's movies. MGM was making that, I think. No, Universal was making that. Sorry, 
Mm-hmm. And then they sold the Great Ziegfeld while still in pre-production, but they kept Showboat, so that sort of boosted them. So that was good. Okay. It is the first Academy Award nominee over three hours. Fair enough. Just more proof that the length of a movie does not matter for it to be good or bad, because I really expected with these old movies, at least, that it would matter if it was so long and it was going to be boring, but nope. Nope. Somehow the one hour and four minute movie <laughs> that was Garden of Ella was more boring. It was so. way more boring, yeah. <laughs> okay, I have one okay, final fact that I want to end it on. Yes. Which is that in the Pretty Girl number, the Rhapsody mm-hmm. in Blue portion, one of the Silver Fringe and Antlers quartet of dancers, she gets very disoriented when her group does its final moves. Uh, it's uh, apparently, oh. according to IMDb, the second one from the left. And her movements are completely out of sync with the other three until, with a thump, she sits down on the stairs. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. I love that. I'm going to look back at it. Right? I want to look it up now as well. Since the incredibly uh. complex number was shot in very long takes, they allowed the error to remain in the film because... Yeah. Yeah. Poor Gertie. Cute. So yeah, that uh, that ends us on the great Ziegfeld. Yeah. Great movie. Great stuff. Mm. Next one? Or do you have yes. some... Trying to see which one it is. Uh, Libel Lady. Libeled Lady? Yeah. I quite like the libeled lady. This might take it for me. I can understand. I can totally see that. First of all, it's another Powell Loy pairing, right? Yes. What Again, a fucking We have duo. William Powell and Myrna Loy just after Great Siegfeld. Same couple. And Great stuff. It's really good. It's yeah, it's a comedy and it's very good. Essentially, the comedy part of it. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> Essentially, it's about this woman, Connie, and she gets falsely accused of breaking up a marriage. So she sues a newspaper for libel. Like a libeled lady. Yeah. And the editor is so desperate that he he, he gets like a really handsome dude. And he goes, okay, you gotta maneuver this girl into being alone with mm. you when your wife shows up. And then we have proof that she breaks up marriages. Only issue is yes. this dude is not married. So, and I'm going to very quickly <laughs> quote Wikipedia here because this is the funniest wording they could have used for it. Oh, God. The managing editor, Warren, volunteers his long-suffering fiancé. <laughs> this is true, though. This it's is so true. true. Yeah. To marry he a this fiance, dude. And he, go- he goes, wait, I know you want to marry me. I know you've been saying, I know I said that we were married today, but I can't because the newspaper is in trouble. you got to marry this guy. And she's like... Yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. But somehow they convince her and yeah. she ends up falling in love with the guy as well. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Because obviously Bill and Connie, which is William Powell and Myrna Lloyd, they end up falling in love because that's the story, right? She, he yes. has to seduce her and she accidentally seduces him and, and he falls in love with her. he's supposed to get the newspaper to be like, oh yeah, she breaks up marriages. But because he falls in love with her, he tries to constantly avoid the friend that hired him from getting to her. So he's like, no, I haven't seen her in 10 days. Meanwhile, he is meeting her twice or thrice a day. (laughs) And it's at the end, they they get married, right? But Gladys, this fiancé, she decides she that she so actually good. would rather have William Powell than this this uh-huh. horrible fucking newspaper dude that she's married to. So she interrupts their honeymoon to reclaim her on-paper husband. Um, and 
It's wonderful. It's great because then Bill finds, like, he reveals that he finds out that Gladys was married before and she was divorced in, like, Yucatan, so it's invalid. But Gladys goes, no, I got a second divorce in Reno, so legally it does count. And And they're like, we're actually married. You and a Myrna Loy character actually aren't married. And they start fighting, like, the guys start fighting with each other and then the girls start fighting with each other. It's so good. (laughs) I I love, I recommend this movie. The ending is so abrupt. Though I, I, it was kind of funny to me as well, but like it doesn't really, it doesn't really solve anything. No, I, they don't go nothing. into them being divorced or anything. It does kind of show Gladys eventually when the guys end up in a fight. She calls out to her original boyfriend's name, which they kind of take as a sign of okay, she is really in love with him. So it's fine; they can be two separate couples. But they never. It just stops basically in the room where that whole reveal is done they never get into how it goes from there on <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> it's fantastic i i yeah it's really funny it's just it also has a lot of good lines that are just good jokes it really does um do you have any notes because here's the thing right we are gonna be talking about some really lovely fun stuff and also i'm gonna make you so so very sad Oh, okay. Um, Let me see. I don't have a lot of notes on this one because I think I was quite into it. So I wasn't... You weren't taking notes. You were paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. I loved Gladys. So Gladys is the fiancé. She is wonderful. She is so... I don't know. The actress is able to make her so funny. And she is constantly done with her boyfriend's shit. But eventually we'll get convinced. Also, same with William Powell's character when Gladys tries to say, like, no, no, you're being so annoying right now. But it takes a little bit of womanizing and she's over it. And, oh, I loved her so much. Yep. Great. Uh, it had great physical comedy as well. At some point, Bill falls into the, oh, that whole bit of <laughs> Bill, which is William Powell's character. That whole bit where Bill has convinced Connie's father that he is a really good fisher, but he actually doesn't know how to fish. So he does get a little course just before he goes on a fishing weekend with Connie and her father. But he hasn't really learned how to fish. So at some point he's like, okay, I'll get away from them and then I can look into my little book of how to fish. But then comes this great physical comedy bit where he catches a fish on a line but he completely falls into the water and he tries to run back and it goes for like two or three minutes where he's just struggling in the water and for some reason it was so fucking funny to me and the fish ends up being a super rare fish so the father goes oh my god you're the best fisher in history and he's like oh yeah that was on purpose it's so good absolutely great so good yeah there was an East Lynn reference, which I thought was cool because mm-hmm. we saw East Lynn. Love East Lynn. No. That, yeah, East Lynn was a great movie. It was fantastic. The way that Bill has everyone in the palm of his hand. Um, and then let me see what I have for a quote. Ah, it's the newspaper man who goes, uh, someone asks him, what do we use for a headline? I don't care. War threatens Europe. And they ask him, which country? And he goes, flip a nickel and leaves. <laughs> yep. He's like, I don't fucking care. Oh, and oh, that's also another great moment when the priest, I guess, comes in to marry Gladys and 
Bill. Mm. But Gladys, at this point, definitely is not in love with Bill yet. She's still in love with her boyfriend. So to congratulate her, he gives her a short kiss, the boyfriend. But Gladys is like, no, 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 no. She's taking this. So she goes full mouth on mouth in front of this priest who has just married her with another man. And (laughs) Bill just kind of leans over and goes an old friend of the family and the (laughs) priest watched them kiss even more and longer and more intense and bill goes very old friend (laughs) it's so good and then the final quote i have which just encapsulates this movie is the boyfriend guy going she may be his wife but she's engaged to me (laughs) doesn't make any sense out of context but it's great Oh, I love this movie so much. This is going so high up in my list. I love... Yeah. I don't know. 1936 comedies just hit different, right? Like, yeah. these 1930s comedies have been so physical and so deadpan. Very and different. They're so different, but they're so good. I feel like not that all recent comedy movies don't have this, right? Of oh, no, there's some fantastic that... recent comedies. But... There's fantastic ones. But I do feel like the 1930s ones are still a little bit more genuine about it or There's something. There's energy Maybe to it's the internet or I don't know. That kind of steers the way that comedy is going. Have you seen this one post where I think it was, it's a gift from Mean Girls of when she's on stage and she kicks the radio off stage and she hits a guy in the face. And mm-hmm. someone posted that gif and was like, how did they do that? And uh-huh. someone replied, they kicked the radio in his face. They just did. They just kicked a radio. He got hit in the face with the radio. That's how they did that. And it's this idea of like, you know, get fucking physical with it. Take a radio to the face, you know? And that's that's so evident in 1930s comedies because they couldn't do anything fancy, really. So if you want to do physical comedy, you have to dedicate 100% to it. There's no getting around that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, that's all I had. Fun facts. Nice. Okay, so how do you want to do this? Do you want me to make you really sad first or do you want to end on the bittersweet note? No, no, make me really sad first. Okay, you're really not going to like it. Oh. I'm okay. So, Gene Harlow got lead billing in this. Mm Mm-hmm. William Powell and Myrna Loy got second and third billing. Um, Wait, Jean Harlow was Gladys? Or? Gladys, yeah. She got leaping yeah. in this. Now, Jean Harlow and William Powell were engaged. Or not engaged, oh. but together and contemplating mm-hmm. marriage off screen during production. Okay. And, th- you know, that was sort of like a, a thing. Originally, Originally, Jean Harlow wanted to play Connie so that her character and William Powell's character wound up together, which was like a super romantic thing. But obviously, mm-hmm. you know, William Powell and Myrna Loy are like the star duo. So they yeah. wanted that to be like a, a Powell-Loy vehicle because they expected audiences to be like, no, no, we want to see them together by the yeah, end Yeah, that it. makes sense. But, you know, Jean Harlow had already signed on to do the film, so she had to settle for, for playing Gladys. Mm-hmm. Did he run away with Myrna Loy? No. Okay. Jean Harlow died a year later Aww. before she could actually get married to William Aww. Powell. That is really upsetting. I, I liked her so much. Yep, she was 26 when she died. Oh my god. But because she was Gladys, and this is it's just shit luck that she was Gladys, she got to play a wedding scene with him. Oh. She got to play a oh. wedding scene. I'm gonna cry. That's so... T- no. I know. 
And then when she died and eventually was buried or entombed in Forest Lawn Cemetery the year later, she was dressed in the gown she wore in this film. Oh my god. I know. I'm so sorry. It is hard. This might be genuinely the saddest fact. The saddest fact. I am so upset at this, man. Oh, I am kind of glad for her, though, that at least she got, she got to, to the wedding scene, do right? the wedding scene. But that's so sad. It's she so deserves sad. better. Especially because, and I'm very quickly going to steer us away from the sadness, Myrna Loy was fucking around again. God. This, <laughs> this crew was fucking as well. She was fucking. Apparently uh, rumored, I should state. Okay, yeah. But she... <laughs> she, she was... Uh, Rumored to be fucking Spencer Tracy while making this movie, who played uh, who played Warren, the boyfriend newsporter, yeah, the r- news, yeah. newsman. That does make a couple of the completely wrong couples yep. that end up. And on top of this, Loy recently married. She recently married Arthur Hornblow Myrna. Jr. No. Yeah. So as a sort of joke going on. <laughs> Spencer Tracy set up in the studio commissary an I hate hornblow table reserved only for men who claim to have been romantically rejected by Myrna Loy. Oh my god. <laughs> Which is so fucking funny to me. Oh my god. The amount of cheating that's going on though. Oh my god. Yeah. I Calm mean, down, to be everyone. fair, this movie, they had so, so much fun making this. You know how Lord of the Rings, everyone moved to New Zealand for a bit and just lived together Mm -hmm. to make those movies? It was that, but smaller. They all went to small cabins in the California mountains during production to shoot the exteriors. So they spent nearly Mm -hmm. a week just sort of living cozily together, uh, enjoying the rustic scenery far from the the studios and the the stress. Uh That's where they filmed the scene with the fish that you were talking about. Right. I love and that. they just had a good time. Myrna Loy literally said in her in her autobiography, a good time was had by all during the shoot. Libeled Lady was one of the best of the so-called screwball comedies with a great cast and Jack Conway directing us at breakneck speed. Apparently, while shooting the movie, the four stars had become just really close friends. And no. William Powell gave up his habit of hiding in his dressing room between scenes just so he could join in on the fun with the rest of the cast. Yes, we love to see Legend. it. Legend. I when we finally see a cast and crew that likes each other. It's so good. It, I'm so happy that these people just had fun. You can see it. You can see it on the screen. I you genuinely really can. believe that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Everyone making this movie just had so much fun making this movie. They, <laughs> the production code office, didn't like a lot. Of the, like the, they suggested a few more tweaks be made from this movie. <laughs> um, even after it was cleared, the the guy from the office still was like, mm, "Some of these parts of this story reflect unfavorably upon marriage and the sanctity of the home." But they didn't give a shit because they were having way too much fun making it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a bunch of, of shots that didn't even make it into the movie, which is like uh, shots of the, the four stars walking arm in arm on the studio lot. Stuff where Myrna Loy is like scrambling across a room, frantically falling over furniture. She slaps William Powell in the face in one of these scenes. <laughs> these are all in the trailer. I highly recommend you watch it. The trailer is mm. genuine. Just so much fun. Apparently, they did a remake in 1946 in color called Easy to Wed. And it apparently compares really well. 
I'm not sure okay. if I like it as much, but it might be worth a go. It has Lucille Ball, Keenan Wynn, and Van Johnson, who are all pretty big names as well. So I, yeah, I, yeah, fair enough. Maybe. So yeah, may- maybe I'll give that a shot, but this movie, big fan. And that makes it very painful that, along with Grand Hotel, this is one of the very few Academy Award nominations for Best Picture that received no other nominations. <laughs> Why does Hollywood hate good movies? I get it in a sense that it isn't super prestige. No, it's that's true. a lot of fun to watch, but it's not necessarily the movie where I would say, wow, they really did so much artistically. Oh, no, know? yeah, that's absolutely true. It's just it's just so but much it's fun. It's definitely worth it for the fun. Yeah. Okay, so our next movie, Mr. Deeds. Mr. Deeds goes to town. <sighs> oh, you um, didn't like Mr. Deeds? <laughs> I have very mixed feeling about Mr. Deeds. I quite liked Mr. Deeds. I liked parts of it, and then other parts, no. I th- thought the ending was ridiculous, but like funnily ridiculous i just don't think it was intended Mm. to be funny no no it was probably intended to be like inspirational yeah mr deeds is a man played by gary cooper we know from a farewell to arms the lives of a bengal lancer and he was also in wings apparently but short role oh okay um and directed by frank capra from it happened one night lady for a day oscar winner yes yeah And Mr. Deeds is a man that inherits a fortune from an uncle that he doesn't really know all that well. Yeah. And he lives in a village, but he gets taken to the town, I think, New York. Should note really quickly, this dude is like, he's a part-time greeting card poet and tuba player. Yeah. That's the level of person we're operating on. He lives in like a shit hillbilly town in Vermont and then mm-hmm. gets $20 million and goes to New Which York City. Which is a lot at the time. Yeah. And he is not At the time? Stupid. If I got $20 million now, I'd be... That'd yeah, be insane. okay, obviously. But back <laughs> like, then it was, what, probably $200 million or something? Yeah, it's crazy. And he's not stupid or naive, but he does see the best in people, basically. But it kind of turns against him because when he gets very rich, a lot of people start wanting things from him and start trying to cheat him out of his money or, you know, lawyers, other family members of the uncle. And he falls in love with a woman, but she from the start is actually a reporter that tries to put all kind of kind of bad articles about him, trying to make him look ridiculous. And she also falls in love with him, which makes her feel really bad about the fact that she's publishing a lot of bad articles about him because it is really affecting him. Yeah, should add, her name is Babe. Yes, <laughs> Babe. Just Babe. And he eventually finds out and this kind of really breaks him. He's like, okay, even the one person that I thought I could trust here is trying to fuck me over and then who else can I trust? There is no point in this. Uh, he does kind of get up a little bit from this where he is like okay i want to use this money for good so i'm gonna start this thing i'm gonna use 18 million out of my 20 million uh dollars at the time i guess yeah or still now dollars uh, <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> I'm gonna still use dollars 18 yep. million of my dollars to start a thing where farmers that are currently out of a job can apply and if they keep at the job for yeah, three years yeah, they work, then they, they get the, the land, land. For bit, yeah they can have it for free and people are like no 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 you can't you can't do that you can't give this money to a good thing to a good cause you can't do that so the family members that i talked about earlier that i mentioned start a 
wait a lawsuit, a lawsuit against yeah. him and there's this whole court case where he does not say anything mr deeds does not speak up because he's like eh, i mean it doesn't matter what i say because everyone here is trying to fuck me over and what is the point of talking what we should also add is that like they're trying to declare him mentally incompetent based specifically yes. on these articles that babe has written yeah they have a few more things like witnesses from the town but they also turn out to be kind of mentally deranged yeah and there's this whole thing where he doesn't want to talk but then of course babe speaks up and it's like yeah you should speak up for yourself he's the best man i know yeah she and goes like i i made bullshit articles and like and eventually he and does he speak t- up and he, he does... turns into BBC Sherlock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so stupid. And it's ridiculous, right? The ending to this is it's a ridiculous thing where he suddenly becomes mm-hmm. the most competent lawyer ever. Yeah. I do want to very quickly note the Wikipedia wording of this because once again it is hilarious. Mm. He begins speaking, systematically punching holes in Cheddar's case and landing one in his face. <laughs> True. Which is accurate. <laughs> But really well worded. And then the judge declares him to not be only sane, but the sanest man who ever walked into this courtroom. And then he kisses Babe and everyone claps. Yeah. It's, oh. Yeah, it's not only not realistic, but it also, I felt kind of cheated. It just feels so stupid. (laughs) It's, yeah. Yeah. And the rest of the movie is interesting. Like, it's not Yeah. Yeah. It's not great. It's not. Yeah, it's kind of mid. It's not bad, but it's not that amazing either. I, on the one side, liked Mr. Deed's character because he's really good and he, because he sees the good in people, I think he also has a few quotes that are quite interesting about, you know, can people start hurting each other and start being nice to each other? You know, that kind of stuff. But at the same time, it's like, he's so, I don't know, it feels very confusing how he is portrayed to be smart, not only in the lawsuit but even quite before that he does know how to handle the money and stuff but at the same time he's like stupid like I don't... yeah it's a thing where they 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 don't want him to be incompetent because they want him to be you know a likable and and, and but mm-hmm. they need him to be incompetent for the rest of the story to make sense and yeah they write him as really really smart but conflicting. also a massive moron at the same time yeah, he's a bit confusing as a character. Yeah. I'm going to give you a fun fact for this movie, which is mm-hmm. going to immediately make you realize what we watched. Okay. Because this movie was remade in 2002. Oh, that's recent. Yes, it was directed by Stephen Brill. It was written by Tim Hurley. Mm-hmm. And it starred, in the title role, Adam Sandler. What? That's crazy. And now, with that context... I pose to you that, yeah, yeah, we did just watch a 1936 Adam Sandler movie. That's so weird. What the fuck? Because that is what this is. Mm. That's what this is. These characters make no sense. And it's an odd thing about a a slightly weird guy getting an incredibly hot, competent woman to fall for him Mm -hmm. and then getting everything he ever wanted at the end, even though that makes no sense for the story they're telling whatsoever. It's an Adam Sandler movie. It is. It is. Yeah. They they made an Adam Sandler movie in 1936. 30 years before Adam Sandler was born. (laughs) How did they do that? (laughs) Uh, Well, Gary Cooper does look a little bit better than uh, 
Adam Sandler too. That's true. That's true. Do you have any notes and quotes? Well, I started immediately. The first thirty seconds, maybe not even thirty seconds of the film, is a car crash. But it's like I I noted down. Oh, that car is going fast, fast. Oh, Martin Semple dead because of that. Like it's so <laughs> yep. quick as well. They don't delve into this. They could no, have just, just skipped it. They could have just gone. Okay, this guy has died. But no, they go thirty seconds of car crash. Yep. And then I don't know, man. Yep. Absolutely. I love Deeds thinking Mr. Haller is up to something because he doesn't like his face. <laughs> yep. I don't like Babe for tricking Deeds and then talking about him behind his back. I also don't like this thing where, of course, she can try to redeem herself. Of course, she can still defend him in the court case. But then don't immediately get back together because, I don't know, maybe I'm reading into this too realistically. It's just a movie. Yeah. But, you know, in real life, I don't think it's a good idea. That trust is not immediately going to be back. Maybe be friends for a while or something. To be fair, the movie doesn't explicitly have them kiss at the end or anything. So in that sense, maybe it's a bit open, but he does carry her in her arms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's mostly because of, like, the Hays Code. Mm, They're not married, so. Right, right, right. (laughs) Dee's running away and falling over free trash cans after confessing is relatable as fuck. (laughs) Yep. That was really good. This is one of out of two movies that did this, where Babe was crying, but then they're not showing her face. We only get to see the back of her head. Yeah. And I wonder if this is just because the actresses couldn't cry on cue or something, because it feels like a very weird choice. I am just looking like the back of a head. Well, so we're going to get to this in a movie later on. The other one that did it. There is another movie that did this, yeah. And yeah, there, there was a yeah. reason for it there. It's an odd reason, but it, there is a reason. Okay. So it might be the same here, but I'm, I'm saving that fun fact for a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of surprised Jean Arthur made it past the silent film era because her voice isn't very nice. Don't get me wrong, I liked her acting, but mm-hmm. something I noticed where I was like, huh. Wait, you said Jean Arthur's voice isn't very nice? Yeah. That's really fucking funny because... <laughs> so... Carol Lombard originally was going to play the female lead, but she backed out three days before production because she went Uh to go to do My Man Godfrey. So shooting had to begin without a female lead in place. So they were sort of scrambling, and Frank Capra really wanted Gene Arthur, and Harry Cohn, the head of Columbia, was very against that. So Frank Capra actually managed to persuade him by going, no, no, listen to her voice, don't study her face. And that's when they cast her. So the fact that you specifically didn't like her <laughs> voice very much is really funny to me. Oh, no. Also, because again, like <laughs> two years earlier, when Frank Capra did the whole song and dance with Claudette Colbert, uh, mm-hmm. he once again had to see to it that Gene Arthur was photographed primarily from the left side. Oh, my God. Yep. That's funny. I thought she was quite pretty. but I, I also think she's okay. quite pretty, Ooh. yeah. But... Uh, <laughs> Also, while we're here, a quick mm-hmm. step back. You were talking about the bit with the garbage cans. Mm-hmm. Because you have that tender scene, right, of Babe reciting that poem that Deeds wrote for her. And it was almost deleted because Capra thought it was way too sappy. But Jean Arthur had been really working hard on that scene. So she convinced Aww. Capra to at least film it and then you can cut it later. But it was good. So they kept it in. But that's why they filmed the bit of Deeds tripping over the garbage cans. Because Frank Capra wanted to add some comic relief to break the sentimental mood. <laughs> I think that was a really good choice. Yep. The movie did succeed in making me feel bad for Deeds. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I feel so sorry for him. He never did anything wrong. Oh, yeah, right. 
Listen, I'm not a hopeless romantic. So the part where... Oh my, I couldn't. I can't. I can't. This is where I get secondhand embarrassment. Mm -hmm. It's like the judges or maybe even the lawyer of the opposite side asking... Babe, well, you're in love with him, aren't you? And she goes, yes. And you see Deeds like turning his head and going, oh my God, she Whoa, loves me. She loves, yeah. And that's when he is able to start talking and defending himself. And I just can't. I mm, just, it's in the ridiculous. moment I was just, like trying to uh, hide my face with my head. I can't. It's mm-hmm. not the, not the, that you're in love with him. Yes. Yep. Um, yep. OMG, I was an O-filler in middle school. Were you an O-filler? A what now? At some point in Deed's whole argument for why he is sane, people tell him, well, you played a tuba and that's weird. And he goes, yeah, well, everyone does something when they're thinking. Some people, you know, twirl their hair and some people are O-fillers, which, for example, the judges. It's like when you... When you fill in the O's on like... Fill in like, all scant- the O's yeah. and <laughs> absolutely an O-filler. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Uh, he also mentioned doodling, which seems very early use of that term. So I'm very glad you mentioned that. This Is movie, it the first use this of movie that term? coined the term doodle. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, I love that. This I was is already the, wondering the first time the verb doodle was ever used in the English language. Oh my god! In the Hell sense of yes. absent-minded scribbling. That's amazing! Oh my god, I love that. I know, right? It's Origins wild. Doodling. Yep. Quite like this movie. Not sure how I feel about some themes and deeds was a little too nice to be true. Characters do need bad traits for you to be able to relate to them. But I I liked it. It's fine. Um, Yeah, the movie was far from bad. It just, it wasn't that interesting. I have, quote, the lawyers coming up to Mr. Deeds all the way at the start. I'm John Cedar of the New York firm of Cedar, Cedar, Cedar and Buddington. (laughs) Cedar, Cedar, Cedar and Buddington. Buddington must feel like an awful stranger. Hmm? Buddington is uh, the middle name of one of the writers. Oh, I like yeah. that. It also very much reminded me of... Okay, this is going to sound weird. Reminding me of Imagine Dragons. The reason for this is that Imagine Dragons has four band members. Dan, 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 and Ben. <laughs> Poor Ben. <laughs> All right. Right, okay. I have a bunch of fun facts on this movie. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start with the fact that this was based on a short story. It was based on a short story called, or not a short story, I think it was a slightly longer story, but it was it was a serial. So mm. it appeared in short bits in the American magazine. And it was written under the name Opera Hats. That's what it was called originally. And they decided not to go with that for the title of the movie. So they tried out some other titles, including A Gentleman Goes to Town and Cinderella Man, which is what someone calls Mr. Deeds. Mm-hmm. But they settled on Mr. Deeds Goes to Town because it was the winning entry in a contest held by the Columbia Pictures Publicity Department. That's kind of cool. It's kind of <laughs> funny, right? That's just Hey guys, yeah. what should we call our movie? Yeah, hey, can we send out a send out a little survey? We don't know, so you choose. You choose. We're going to start with the fact that Jean Arthur was very terrified making this movie. She was so overcome with stage fright that she often vomited before scenes and would just run oh. back to her dressing room after each take to have a good cry. But she was totally cool oh, on camera. No. And Gary Cooper, the chillest dude on earth, like just very quickly, Gary Cooper was so chill as a person. Frank Capra was convinced that he would be perfect for the part of Deeds because he was such a chill human. I can see that. Including that he would just like 
between scenes while everyone was doing their thing, he would just lie down on the floor, pull his hat over his eyes, and grab a quick nap. Like, he was chill as shit. Hell yeah. Uh, And he was one of the very few actors who could make Gene Arthur feel comfortable on the set. And Gene Arthur never saw the film until she and Frank Capra were guests at a 1972 film festival. So, like... 72? 72. Nearly 40 years later. So, yeah. I love to hear about crews liking each other or it's so good this year other. right They've, it's so good i'm so excited um quickly checking if i have anything else oh yeah frank capra always was boasted like oh i never go over budget this came in five percent over budget oh yeah. capra capra mainly because he shot from more different angles than he had on his earlier films so mm. you know that becomes slightly more expensive that $20 million fortune you mentioned, you said, oh, that's probably mm-hmm. about $200 million today. Close. It's about $427 million today. Oh, my God. Yeah, that is a ridiculous it's amount of money. It's insane. It's mad. And then my final fun facts are some lovely little... Well, my final fun fact was going to be the doodle fun fact, but you hit that. Um, <laughs> so instead, I'm going to tell you about Frank Capra. And Frank Capra is, you know, an auteur. He has a very specific way of filmmaking, yeah. and he would like to be he, he would like to be regarded as such. So Harry Cohn, CEO of, of Columbia, had a dictum in which he would only allow his directors to print one of their takes, which would save them, you know, so much money. Capra found a loophole... Where at the end of each take, instead of shouting cut and making the camera stop rolling, he would just shout, do it again. And the actors would launch <laughs> immediately into an unbroken repetition of the I scene. I love this so fucking much. Oh my god. It's so good. It's the and best. he kept that control because he refused to shoot if any studio executives came on the set. The moment Harry Cohn walked on set, Capra would call a half hour coffee break. <laughs> oh my fucking god, that's so, so good. funny. That lost time was so expensive that Cohn just stopped coming. Like, <laughs> so oh fucking my god. good. I love this. Right? I can just, you know, being on set sometimes. Yeah, they're like, okay, let's immediately do it again and keep rolling. But the fact that he just did it for all of it with, with yep. how expensive film is as yep. well. It's like... He's just like, no, I, I want to get my fucking takes, man. <laughs> I mean, hey, you are an Oscar-winning director. You do you. <laughs> yep. Uh, okay, no, I have one more fun fact, actually. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because th- this is as good a time as any to mention her. Have you ever heard the name Bess Flowers? No. No, I figured you wouldn't have. Best Flowers was an extra in this movie. And in over 800 other movies. Oh, oh one of them. Her nickname was Queen of the Hollywood Extras. She has appeared in this. over 800 movies, of which 21 were nominated for Best Pictures, five of them winning the award. Which means that she is the record holder for an actor appearing in Best Picture winners. <laughs> Hell yeah! Incredible, best flowers. You absolute legend. And I've I've not seen her mentioned before. Yes. I don't know when we're gonna get to her again. again. So I just I yes. just wanted to get her out there. Putting it here. Best flowers. What a, what a woman. I will look up when we see her next. I'm gonna mention this woman whenever I get a chance to. But you know, 
800 movies. So I love this. Yeah, this was just her. It was her just job, her thing. Probably it's in every single thing on IMDb, it's like she was this and this uncredited, this and this uncredited, this and this uncredited. My God, it is an absolute insanity. I've been scrolling down while we're talking. I started scrolling down when we when I started talking about this. I have just hit 1929. Oh my God! But just at some point, people must have started casting her just. For the meme. Right? She, like, she was the original Wilhelm scream, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm just very quickly running through these from 1929 upwards uh-huh. to see if she has been in anything we've seen. She was in One Hour With You. Uh-huh. She was a party guest. And she was, and you're going to love this, a chorus girl in 42nd Street. Yes! Oh my god, girl! Right? Let's She go. was also in It Happened One Night. She played a woman called Agnes. Mm. She was a party guest in The Thin Man. Oh my god. She was in Naughty Marietta as an undetermined secondary role. Isn't that fantastic? She was a showgirl in the Broadway Melody of 1936. Hell yeah. And now, most recently, she was in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. And we're going to see her a a bunch more. She was also, sorry, it's further up in the list, so I didn't see it, but she was also in Anthony Adverse. Hey. Hey, she was one of the nuns. Oh my god, I love this. What... And she was in Dodsworth. Uh, so. I know I've said legend a lot of times about her. But no, but this is oh like, my God, yeah. Legend. Oh, and really quickly, just because it's really funny. She's also, again, a party guest in the Thin Man sequel after being a party guest in the yes, original Thin Man. So, they got her back. <laughs> they, she reprised her role. Um, oh, amazing. So best flowers. I'm going to look up every single movie that we're watching to see if you know she's in it now. Uh we're going to keep track of best. If we ever finish this podcast and we still want to do more, we're just going to watch all every the best flowers movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's uh that's my fun facts for this one. We can go on to Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet. Let's not summarize Romeo and Juliet. No, you know what it's about. You know what it's, it's about. It's, there's two teenagers and they're in love and then they die. And they do the exact play. I mean, the exact it's, oh, yeah. play, I it's, don't know. But... It's word for word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah okay. It's very accurate to the original text. Because it does the old English again. And it that makes does. me angry because I don't like I it. I love when they do the original no. Shakespeare. No. Yes. No. no, no one talks like that. It's... It Thanks. works for plays. It doesn't work for movies. I'm so sorry. Anyway, Norma Shearer's back. Norma Shearer's here again. I always love seeing Norma Shearer. Yeah, and Basil Rathbone's Basil Rathbone. back as well. He's not Romeo. We should Basil maybe Rathbone. mention it's Norma Shearer and Leslie Howard as Juliet Romeo. Basil Rathbone is only evil, guys. Basil, Basil Rathbone <laughs> is Tybalt. I'm yes. going to immediately mention my Basil Rathbone fun fact because I'm so excited. You know that oh he's, a, he's a sword fight expert, right? Yes, yes, yes. They had an epic sword fight yeah, yeah. as well. This is the only on-screen sword fight in his entire film career that he wins. Oh my god. <laughs> Legend. I love this. Legend. But I also just like him so much as an actor. He's so to be fair, good. Every time I see him in a movie and I don't get a sword fight out of it, I am kind of pissed. It's so disappointing, <laughs> right? You're here to watch him just kick ass with a sword and get his yes. ass kicked because he's always it's the bad guy. So... But like... It's so good. I also realized about Basil Rathbone and I freaked out because before this podcast, I didn't watch a lot of very old movies. Mm -hmm. But for college, I had to watch a few. Yeah. And 
I realized that I'd already seen a Basil Rathbone movie and I freaked out because I was hey. like, wait, I already saw it before I even knew who he was. I, I, I saw a Sherlock movie of his. Yeah. I saw him as Sherlock. That's so cool. Yes. I love this guy. He's such a good Sherlock as well. Sorry, Benedict Cumberbatch, oh my God, but yeah. Mr. Rathbone. Mm. Yes, Mr. Rathbone, we stan. Yeah. Um, there is a few other returning people, for example, the director George Cooker, who we know from Little Woman and last year's David Copperfield. And Edna May Oliver is back, who is kind of the aunt in every Gotham movie. She is, yeah. She's great at it, but yeah. Yeah, but I loved her the most the first time, because that's when you don't know her, and it's like, oh yeah, she's so good as and that character, yeah, but then, then she like, gets oh, typecast, and it's the same in every She's thing, just but... always that character, yeah. Yeah, she is good, but... Just for really good, she was at March in Little Women. Yeah. Which is about yeah. Little Women. And here she's, uh, she takes care of... Yeah, she's the nurse. Uh, Juliet, yeah. Yeah. So, I, okay, I like this movie a lot, because I like Shakespeare a lot. This is the, the thing, right? I'm pretty big on the classic authors i find it a mm-hmm. really fascinating thing so shakespeare yeah. to me is gonna do good if, if it's like authentic shakespeare it's gonna do good same as why i'm I, we're gonna talk about this in a second but a tale of two cities fucking hit for me because dickens is my shit so mm-hmm. the fact that i i love they, they use they use the original language and they stick close to the play and i don't like romeo and juliet that much right i don't the story mm-hmm. i don't give a shit but i like the dedication to it mm-hmm that's what gets me with this. Okay, I get that. I can see that. I I don't know. I don't think I necessarily thought it was bad, but I'm maybe too Gen Z. It's just too boring for me. It's two yeah. hours. Well, of... <laughs> I'm going to give you a little... They cut about 45%, uh, or they used, sorry, oh about 45% God. of the play. Good choice, oh my in my God. opinion, because as I've stated, I don't much like Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you already find this quite long, you maybe don't, maybe, maybe, maybe steer clear. No, I don't think Shakespeare is just not my thing. I like the stories a lot. I don't really like the way they're told. So mm. I feel like if they would do a modern version of Shakespeare where it's just modern day language and not even, it doesn't have to be modern day setting. I think that might also be a little bit cringe. But <laughs> just modern day language, I think mm. that would save so much for me. That's because fair. it's just, I cannot relate. I have to think a lot about what they say because I don't very old wording, speak it very yeah. well. Yeah. But, you know, I also didn't... <laughs> this is very surface level of me, but I don't like Leslie Howard's face. <laughs> <It's> mean... <laughs> it's just, I'm so sorry, man. I know he can't help it, but I just, I look at it for two hours and I... Listen, I would disagree with you if not for the fact that his face just bad. No, he's not yes. even ugly, but it's like he's not who you'd look at and go, "Wow, that is such a heartthrob." Yeah. He isn't. Even then it's like it's not like every movie star has to be very handsome. I totally disagree with that. No, but specifically if you're playing Romeo in Romeo yes. and Juliet, that's he, the thing. Yeah. Right? I mean, Basil Rathbone, I wouldn't necessarily say is handsome, but I'm no. a big fan. And I enjoy watching his face because he's cast very well to use mm-hmm, his mm-hmm. face. And it's the same with yeah. Leslie Howard. He's not, an, he's not, I'd say he's a handsome man. He just isn't mm. heartthrob handsome. He isn't sexy. Yeah, so that Norma was kind Shearer of a sexy. little bit distracting. Yeah, Norma Shearer is great. Mm. But then again, they're supposed to be 13 and 16 and i get why they don't do that because that is disturbing but Mm. then at the same time i feel like with romeo and juliet adaptations 
they don't have to be 13 and 16, right? No. But they could make them a little bit more children because they his, need to be the story is about stupid children that's the like, point the point of it is that they are dumb 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 teenagers who do dumb yeah. dumb dumb shit and these families reconcile because in the end their children are dead right that's yeah, what exactly. fucks them up so much that they're like oh we we screwed this up and then they keep making them like 20 year olds who should be smart enough to not kill themselves yes. over stuff like this yes exactly like again you don't have to make them 14 or 16. I get that that's creepy, but... Just make them 17-year-olds. Get the point a little bit better, please. Yeah. Okay, let's see. Juliet, or basically Norma Shearer, at some point is sitting with a deer, and that is amazing. It was adorable. She was a mm. true, mm-hmm. real-life princess, and I yes. love to see that. Yes, she's a vibe. Rosaline's disappointed face when Romeo removes his mask mood. Oh, right, yeah. I was going to say, there was a Tumblr post going around, which was like... What if he's your Romeo, but you're not his Juliet? And someone replied, that means you're his Rosalind and you survive yeah. the fucking play. <laughs> true, true. Yeah. yeah, Romeo and Juliet for me is also like, I don't really believe in love at first sight the way they portray it. And that's because you're a sad, sad, heartless woman. Yeah, no, that's true. But like, <laughs> you, he saw her at a party at like a ball and it didn't even like they didn't even converse they didn't even have a i of course you can say like oh that person is very handsome that person is very imagine everything stopping and them dancing together while this is the exact reason that i did not enjoy west side story (laughs) because they fall in love too fast i know west side story is a romeo and juliet adaptation so i figured because it's the exact same story but Mm. different setting Norma's acting is iconic for how fucking dramatic it is. Yeah. She is dramatic Norma. as fuck in this movie, which is not necessarily her style. She doesn't do that in any of the others we've seen. Oh, yeah. But in this one, she is so dramatic about everything, like the head turns and the mm. way she speaks. Where it's I, like, think it's, I think oh, it's the material, no. right? I think when you play yeah. Shakespeare, you're always going to be dramatic about it. I loved it. Mm. I love the star-crossed lovers trope, but this story is just so stupid. And then they also had to keep the Shakespearean English in the film. Only saving graces are Norma and Basil, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I'm very glad you like Basil. Because he was the mm-hmm. only Best Supporting Actor nominee that year from a Best Picture nominated film. Oh, okay. And he is, I think, until this day... Yeah, today. The only actor to portray Tybalt on screen to receive an Academy Award nomination. Oh, yeah. I can totally see why. No one else has ever managed for Tybalt, so hey, nice, well done, good going. Well done. So, any more notes and quotes? Uh, quotes, I forgot, I have quotes. Okay, so the first one is not really an original um, screen cap for me. I, I mean, I did make the screen cap, but this is just because I saw it in a meme, and I thought it was funny. Um <laughs> I dreamed a dream last night. And so did I. What was yours? The dreamers often lie. (laughs) Yeah, that's a straight Shakespeare quote. Yeah, I know, but I thought it was funny because I know the meme where they say... Oh, yeah, it translates to... Shakespeare is funny because it just translates to, uh, yeah, I heard that you're a fucking liar, little bitch. I had this crazy dream last night. Oh, me too. Really? What did you dream? Yeah, that you're full of shit. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's really good. Uh, and then I screenshotted that at some point, I don't know what this mean in Shakespearean English. You are a saucy boy? 
What is a saucy um, boy? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm so going to get back to you on that one. I don't know, actually. <laughs> There's no way saucy boy is like... I don't know. Okay. Might be. And then last, I have... This probably also just immediately from the Shakespearean play, but I've never read or seen that, so just thought this was a cool quote. When Romeo goes to buy the poison from the potion seller... Potion seller? <laughs> like your strongest... Well, anyway. <laughs> um... At some, the potion seller doesn't really want to give this deadly, deadly potion to him. Yeah. Um, so he goes, my poverty, but not my will consent. And Romeo says, I pay by poverty and not by will. Here is my gold. Worse poison to men's souls, doing more murder in this loathsome world than these poor compounds that thou mayst not sell. I sell thee poison. Thou has sold me none. That's good. Yeah. I, I like Shakespeare. Okay. So, fun facts. Irving Thalberg wanted MGM to make a Romeo and Juliet movie for five years. And studio head Louis B. Mayer fucking refused. He was like, no, that's way over people's heads. But Midsummer Night's Dream? It's early years of the Great Depression. We have budget constraints. But yes, Midsummer Night's Dream happened. Mm. And Mayer said, no fucking way. Am I letting Jack Warner do Shakespeare? Thalberg, <laughs> go do Shakespeare. <laughs> so <laughs> That's good. So they went to go do Shakespeare. There was only one choice for director for Thalberg, which was George Cooker, known as the women's director, because, you know, little women. Mm. And Thalberg's intention and vision was to make the production what Shakespeare would have wanted had he possessed the facilities of cinema. And also, he wanted a performance of his wife, Norma Shearer, to dominate the picture. Okay. So she was cast. <laughs> I don't know how to feel about that couple because he doesn't think she's sexy enough for one role, but then he does... Oh, yeah, no, he he wants her to be successful. Push just, but other yeah. roles. It's a weird fucking combination of people. Yeah. Yeah. And the sad thing about this is that they made it in response to A Midsummer Night's Dream, which was widely regarded as fantastic. Mm-hmm. Some critics liked this film, but on the whole, neither critics nor the public responded very enthusiastically. Yeah. As of today, this is the only Best Picture nominee to have the source material that it's based on be adapted three more times into other Best Picture nominees. Oh, I knew that there were multiple. I thought there were only two, though. The Leonardo DiCaprio one. Well, yeah, that's the thing, right? The beauty of Romeo and Juliet is that it's a very wide net for what can be considered an adaptation. So yes, there's Romeo. West Side Rome- Story. There's Romeo and Juliet, 1968, which was nominated for Best Picture. But there's also two West Side Stories nominated for Best Picture. Mm. Um, Wait, the Leonardo DiCaprio one wasn't nope. nominated. Oh, oh, makes sense. Yeah, it was. It was good, but it wasn't. You know, it yeah, wasn't groundbreaking or whatever. Yeah, are you going to be heartbroken? Oh. You know who turned down this movie before Leslie Howard was cast? Oh, no. Frederick March? Frederick March. No, Frederick! We could have had Frederick, but no. Oh. Alas. Well, to be fair, he already had to do Anthony Adverse, which wasn't his best, so maybe no, good this choice. No, is, this is true. So, on top of Basil getting an award nomination, Norma Shearer remains the only actress to portray Juliet on screen and receive an Academy Award nomination for that. Ah. Oh. I get it. I loved her. Oh, yeah. She was fantastic. Again, very not realistically played, but loved No, her. yeah, exactly. Yeah, in an interview, George Cooker did admit that this was the one film of his that he would have liked to do over. Hmm. Fair enough. It makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, the thing with their age is Howard 
Leslie Howard was 43 and Norma Shearer was 34 when playing teenagers in this. Yeah. So it's... Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can also see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were trying to pretend that they were teenagers. Yeah, and it or... didn't. It did not really, really work. No. Yeah. No. For Irving Thalberg, this was the last film he personally produced before his death. Really? Yep. Oh well, thank you for all the movies. Because thank you, he Irving. was around for a lot. Yeah. Oh, he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the premiere took place on the night of his death, September 14th, 1936. No. The radio announcer decided not to interview the stars because they were so grief-stricken that they were afraid that they would break down crying. And oh. That makes sense. Irving Thalberg, yeah. you know, regardless of what you think of Irving Thalberg as a person... And let's not forget Norma Shearer, his wife, in this movie, you know? So mm-hmm. regardless of what you think of him as a person, he did some incredible shit for movies in the 30s yeah. and, and 20s. So yeah, yeah, yeah. R.I.P. Quick heads up and R.I.P. to Mr. Thalberg. He's our first, I think, <clears throat> major death. The one that we were saddest yeah. about obviously happened about, you know, an hour ago in podcast time. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is our first, like, big name. Yeah, movie either actors or crew this is yeah so yeah thank you irving thalberg Mm -hmm. i have one more fun fact to end this on which is that this movie was the fourth shakespeare film to be made in six or seven years between 1929 and 1936 four different shakespeare films were made and then after this movie no more done until like 1944 we're done. Nice. <laughs> Finished. Great. Love love to see it. Well, we're going to get back to it in 1944. Don't you worry. Uh, love me some Shakespeare. So yeah, that was um, Romeo and Juliet. That was Romeo and Juliet. Four more movies to go. So let's... Four more movies. Let's rush the fuck through San Francisco. Because I... God, it was... Oh, I cannot rush through that. I have so fucking... Oh, no. I... This was one of those movies that was it was so middle of the road for me. I have very, very conflicted feelings about San Francisco mm. because the first three quarters of it is very annoying. It's just basically watching a woman get mentally abused by two different guys. Yeah, Jeanette McDonald, by the way, who we love. Yes, lovely. But it's very frustrating to watch and it isn't very entertaining no. either. But then San Francisco is about the tragedy that happened in 1906 in San Francisco where earthquakes hit and fire started and the whole city was basically burned down. And what they did there, what they did, the way they showed this happening is so, so impressive. It's insane. The last quarter is is incredible. And the rest of it is just... Yes. The rest of it is shit. But like... It almost makes up for it. Like it was, almost. it was really hard to watch the first three quarters, but it is so impressive. It really hit for me. Like it, I think it was one of the first movies we've watched for this podcast where I was actually like, oh yeah, upset. <laughs> it's similar, but the opposite to you know that stupid Robert Pattinson movie where it's mm. like a rom com for ninety percent, and then the final shot it zooms out of him and he's like. He's on top of the like the twin mm-hmm. towers when nine eleven's about to happen, and it's like uh-huh. that's like the big twist. It's like that, but done correctly, where it happens mm, right. far enough into the movie that the characters are you know them. I'm not saying you care about them because the movie should have been good if they wanted us to do that, yeah. but you know them, and then you get to see them deal with the catastrophe, 
Whereas yeah, what that movie did was just like tell you the story and then go, oh yeah, and then he died in nine eleven. The end to be like a sort of shock thing. This is not; it's shock, but it deals with it very fucking yeah. well. It's basically to talk about the way they did the last part of the earthquakes and the fires. It was really good editing wise because it is one of the few movies that does really fast cuts. Like it really tries to get down this feeling of panic and you know lives being destroyed in a matter of seconds so they have a editor going ham on this oh yeah haywire insane and then also it was i think i read the first big budget catastrophe movie disaster mm-hmm. movie so they had the budget to really i know they use like uh i think hydraulic stages and whatnot to make the set actually tremble and move and they have buildings falling yeah. apart it's insanely well done and it's just kind of heartbreaking to see the whole thing after that. The main character, played by Clark Gable, by the way, he just looks around for his girl and it's just he's trying to help people. But then another earthquake starts and the people he's trying to help get delved under even more bricks. And it's just devastating. They did such a good job with that. Mm-hmm. If only the first parts of the movie weren't so shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. Because let's quickly mention what the first part is about. Um, we have main character Mary, played by Jeanette McDonald, as you said, who we mm-hmm. know from One Hour With You. Mm, yeah, yes, yeah, One Hour With You, Love Parade, and yeah. Alti Marietta. And she wants to be a singer. She also needs a job right now because her house just burned down. She doesn't have a lot of money. And Clark Gable's character called Blackie takes her in. But Blackie is so manipulative and it's awful because she falls in love with him but he kind of tries to keep her away from this big career she could have over at the opera house because a bunch of people discover her and they're like oh you should do really good opera you should be the main singer and become famous and he's like "Uh, i think not i have her under contract for my shitty little dancing house where i have her sing songs that don't even fit her voice but she's in love with him so she kind of keeps staying around for him even though he sabotages everything that she wants to work for and uh, he's really nasty about it it's awful but then she almost gets married to the guy that makes her a famous opera singer but he's also not really it it's just overall awful yeah there's not even a lot of redemption going on or anything there's no character growth it's just let me quickly see, because as I said, I do have a lot of notes, but most of it is just frustration. I can imagine. Um, he's immediately manipulating you to come back to the paradise because else he won't marry you. Red flag, red flag, yep. red flag. Yep. Disgusting little man. Marry, run. Marry, run. Yep. Am I seriously supposed to root for Mary winning the prize money for Blackie? At some point, Blackie needs to bill out all the employees, but his employees can't come out to dance for the price that was gonna make them money so mary is like i will represent blackie and i i don't know if you're supposed to like cheer for that i'm so confused because blackie is an asshole why would i care about her going up there and oh my god um the secondhand embarrassment of blackie making a scene because he's like he goes up on stage after she's won the money for him and slaps it out of her hands and goes whoever said that you could represent me and he go he's angry and everything and it's yep. it's madness and then the earthquake starts yep then the earthquake and, starts and the movie gets good 
and then the movie gets good for like the last 20 minutes mm-hmm. yeah i it probably won't end on the super lowest for me because i was so impressed by nothing's the last worse than the garden of, of allah <laughs> exactly but oh the first part did this movie so dirty it could have been so good it could have been so, so upset about the it could potential have been so good yeah I really wish I had more to say on this, but I was just, I, no. No, I get that. I have fun facts, but I don't really have, eh, you know? Yeah, no, that's fair. What do we have? Well, first of all, let's start with the earthquake, right? Yeah. Big thing. The song San Francisco written for this film is like, that's become the earthquake memorial anthem. Um, It's sung on Mm. like memorial days and stuff, which is great. That makes sense. I like that song as well. Yeah, it was really good. There's a, there's an unusually large number of silent film stars in here. Oh. Clark Gable, Jack Holt, Jesse Ralph, Edgar Kennedy, Charles Judels, James Murray, Myrtle Stedman, Gertrude Astor, Frank Mayo, Malin Hamilton, Flora Finch, and Nigel de Brulier, John Acker, Rosemary Thirby, Carl Stockdale, Madame Sultawan, yeah. Lillian Rich, Jason Robards, uh, Frank Sheridan, <laughs> Ralph Lewis. There's a lot. There's a bunch. Them. Uh, a lot which, of them must have been kind of extras, though, because there's not that many characters. Oh, no, yeah. A lot of them, I think, are in the background. But, um, yeah. This is fascinating. While the writers, Anita Luce and Robert E. Hopkins, considered W.S. Van Dyke a considerably talented director, they became very worried shortly after filming had begun. I'm going to go into a mm-hmm. big quote here by Anita Luce, who said, Van Dyke was an oaf when it came to the subtleties of the San Francisco Tenderloin. We were horrified watching Woody direct a scene where Blackie reproves an underworld sweetheart for wearing a gaudy necklace and, indicating it, said, Blackie told you not to wear that, it looks cheap. Those words should have been tossed off gently and with a smile, as they would have done, but Van Dyke caused our hero to jerk the necklace off the girl's throat with a brutality that cut into her skin and to bark out the dialogue in the manner of a hooligan. Not all of Gable's native charm could overcome the loutish behavior in which Van Dyke was directing him. We proceeded to producer Bernard Hyman's office to demand a retake, and Bernie was surprised. He said, why? I thought the way Woody directed that scene was swell. For over an hour, Hoppy and I conjured up the spirit of Irving Thalberg, explaining that one crass move on the part of our hero would cause the entire movie to flounder beyond recall. Bernie, bless his simple heart, finally got our viewpoint. He ordered the sequence reshot with Hoppy on the set to guide Van Dyke. Pacing the alley the next day, I said to Hoppy, when Irving died, he'd taken the studio to the top of a toboggan run. From now on, there's only one direction MGM can go. Oh my god. Yep. I mean, and also, like, they were so right that that oh, wouldn't work, but yeah. I don't know what they reshot because it still didn't work. It still didn't work. work. I mean, it could have been worse. Imagine. The main characters are so unlikable, there's no salvaging it. It's... <sighs> yeah could have been so good because if you would have liked these people and it would have it, it would have been a proper romance even with its difficulties you would have cared so much more about the yep earthquake yep the earthquake was impressive and i did feel really sad about it but more about the earthquake and the images of like people struggling but i did not really care about blackie trying to look for mary because no fuck that this doesn't I don't give a fuck about blackie um okay spencer tracy at 14 minutes and 58 seconds, this is the shortest performance ever to be nominated for a leading acting Oscar. Oh. 
And this film was the first of three in three successive years, which were both nominated for Best Picture and a Best Actor nomination for Spencer. Oh. He's going to be in two more movies in the next two years. Wait, that which we're one? Watch. Was he Tim Mullen? Who was he? He was uh, the priest. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I have a whole bunch of facts here that stick together that we're going to get to. You're going to both love and hate them massively. Okay. Jeanette McDonald's older sister, Blossom Rock, signed with MGM, and she was given the name Mary Blake, because Blossom Rock is an interesting name. And then Jeanette's character in this film, her name is Mary Blake. So it's like, wow. Uh, But then Blossom Rock did use Blossom Rock when she went on The Addams Family in 1964 to play Grandmama. Oh, yeah, love that. it's a vibe. The uh, one of Mary's opera gowns was used for Glinda the Good Witch in the Wizard of Oz that we're going to watch. So that's exciting. <laughs> nice for the destructive nature of the earthquake. The, so they built all these sets on like hydraulic lifts and shakers. So they shook mm-hmm. that shit IRL. Yeah, while filming, which that's is amazing, mad. Because I think they also I I looked this up because I was so impressed by it. They also used miniatures. Uh, rear projection, matte paintings. Yeah. And then, yeah, hydraulic ramps to shake the set on cue, which is... Insane. That's insane. Yeah. Also, it sounds like... I mean, it's it's a horrible happening that you're filming, but it sounds so much fun to be on set. To be set on set, yeah, yeah, yeah. When the whole thing is shaking. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna chat you through Clark Gable. <laughs> oh, God, what did he do? So, Jeanette McDonald... She was very excited about Anita Lewis's screenplay, so she brought that to the attention of MGM head Irving Thalberg with the express idea that she should headline alongside Clark Gable because he was, like, the biggest male star in Hollywood and she was, like, one of the Mm -hmm. biggest female stars and was, like, great. And Thalberg was like, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that. They didn't get along too well, though. Gable also, he just didn't really want to make this movie, but he kind of had to because MGM studio head Louis B. Mayer just paid off one of Clark Gable's numerous... um, Let's call them paramours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he kind of had to because he owed him. And oh, Clark was not having a good time, man. Jeanette McDonald's personally chose Spencer Tracy as the, the second male lead. He'd previously been cast as like heavies. This kind of turned his career and, and got him the first of his nine Oscar nominations. Mm-hmm. And Clark and Spencer got along quite well. Mm. They respected each other quite a bit. Because they were quite close in age, they both, like, they managed to force a friendship. They possessed qualities that the other admired, because Gable deeply respected Tracy's acting ability, and Tracy, you know, he couldn't be able to be like, a little bit envious, because Gable was such, like, a heartthrob and a leading man and stuff, right? And so, yeah. they went on to make two more films together. Test Pilot in 1938, and Boomtown in 1940. And by the end of filming Boomtown, Tracy was like, okay... I'm kind of tired of always receiving supporting billing below Gable because we're, you know, sharing leads here. I'd like mm-hmm. to have shared billing going forward. And Gable said, no. And they never worked together again. Oh, my God. <laughs> yup. Now, Gable really fucking hated this movie. That final scene where he breaks down, that's the shot uh-huh. from behind that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. He insisted on being filmed from behind because he didn't want his face on camera while saying the soppy lines. Right. Okay. So okay. he insisted that that was taken from behind. And he could not fucking stand Jeanette McDonald. Specifically oh. her. Like, they just, they could not fucking deal with each other. To the point where he objected to her singing at him, which is, you know, 
her thing. The thing that she the does thing in the movie. That she does. Yeah. She she had to as well. Like the, this entire film was designed as a vehicle for Jeanette McDonald's because her regular singing partner, Nelson Eddy, was doing a concert tour. So she had to. She had right. to sing. That was like the whole reason she was here. And mm-hmm. he could not stand it. So reportedly, before filming his first love scene with her, he filled up on his big spaghetti lunch specifically so that when they had to kiss his breath was so bad from the garlic that she nearly fainted and he would do this consistently just eat so much garlic before they had to kiss oh my god oh my god i mean it's kind of harmless it is but also it's just it's the thing right it's it's an asshole move yeah you're just being an asshole you really dislike a person it's also like it's incredibly funny but you're just being a dick for the sake of being a dick yeah exactly yeah yeah and it's man I'm so sad that Clark Gable is also turning out to be an asshole because he is so good on screen it's like I completely get why he's the most famous actor of his time because yep it works so well. Mm-hmm. But, man. Yeah. Man. Oh, just like the free movie. I don't know if we've seen it in more movies, but the f- no, I don't think no. so. Like the only movies we've seen of him, he every three of them, he did not like making. No, he's <laughs> been a... No, no, he, 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 he... I don't know why he's doing this job. He doesn't want to be there. He yeah. didn't want to be there for it happened one night. He did not want to be with Charles Lefton, specifically on Mutiny on the Mountain. And now he is... Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, no, sorry, I was, I was just going to say, yeah, the, he the, he had to be here because um, Mayer paid off one of his fucking affair partners. Mm. My God. Uh, yeah, so um, final fun fact is that um, the ending obviously fairly downbeat. So the manager of the Paramount Theater uh, in San Francisco after the movie's initial premiere, decided to just add a few shots showing the Golden Gate Bridge being built because, you know, Mm -hmm. that's a positive thing. And the public reaction was so positive that MGM decided to have it added to all other prints in release. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Issue is, though, it was a super inaccurate shot. And there was a whole bunch... They did, like, a montage of recognizable San Francisco landmarks that were just so ridiculously inaccurate that they just omitted the original montage ending in favor of a dissolve into a freeze frame of of the skyline right but the the original montage is a special feature on the dvd release so you can watch it if you really feel like it okay nice yeah so yeah that's my fun facts three more movies right i think that would be tale of two or Mm, three no it's the story of louis pasteur Oh, then we have four movies left, right? Oh, no, the story no. of... Oh, that's a, a T. Okay, yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> S is for story. S comes before T. Oh, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, story of Louis Pasteur. It's a movie that follows Louis Pasteur, who was a real person, who contributed a lot of things, a lot of knowledge about vaccines, specifically for anthrax, which was like the plague for yep. animals. And... Um, rabies. Yeah, he was essentially the chemist who first theorized that microbes cause diseases, so people mm-hmm. should, you know, wash their hands and sterilize their instruments and, and stuff like that. This dude might have single-handedly... Oh yeah, he did a lot, but he was met with a lot of opposition because, you know, change is hard. So change is the difficult. entire Academy of Medicine was constantly going against him and being like, there is no way this is real. You are fucking with us. Yeah. Um, even to the point where 
they did an experiment. He was like, I have a vaccine for anthrax, so all the sheep won't die. And they're like, okay, we'll do an experiment. We'll inject 25 sheep with your vaccine and the other 25 we won't. And then the sheep that were... Uh, had a vaccine didn't die so that was proof that the vaccine worked and still some of them was like yeah i don't believe you though you're still like a cheat for sure yeah it's oh it's it was frustrating to watch but in a good way in the sense of like oh man i love this movie way more than i expected it to because it was really good at keeping you at the edge of your seat the whole time i feel like this was like 1936's oppenheimer or something when it comes to biopics like it was so interesting God damn it. Sorry. Motherfuck. <laughs> ah, it's fine. <laughs> I really quickly want to name the tagline for this movie. Uh-huh. Because the tagline for this movie is, if this story didn't have a happy ending, you might not be alive today to see it. Which is oh accurate. My God, that's amazing. That's accurate and it goes so hard. Yeah. If this dude's research wasn't like widely accepted, we genuinely, people might have just fucking died a bunch. Yeah, yeah, it's such an interesting movie to see, mostly because, I don't know, they make a really exciting thing out of him trying to figure out how to get to the vaccines or to the cures for the things that he's researching. Yeah. And you also constantly see him, you know, get in trouble with this, uh, with the Academy of Medicine, but also the people that do support him. I don't know, it's just really well fleshed out and super interesting. Yeah. Louis Pasteur is played by Paul Mooney, which yeah. it has been a while since we've seen him, but he was in I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, which yeah. we talked about in episode six. I would not have recognized him. Not for a second. At no. all. Yeah. And it's directed by William Dieterle, who also did a Midsummer Night's Dream yeah. from last episode. And finally, Annette, who is Louis Pasteur's daughter, is played by Anita Louise, who we know from, again, a Midsummer Night's Dream and earlier this episode, Anthony Adverse. Yeah. So that was cool. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, the first part of the movie, I was mostly distracted by how many cute sheep there were. They were fucking adorable. I love them. Mm -hmm. Buster is sitting in the audience whenever whenever they have like a meeting with the Academy of Medicine about him, about Buster. And he just goes to sit in the audience without anyone knowing. And they like, he goes, challenge accepted. When (laughs) they're like, oh, we should do an experiment. Yeah, 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 I will do that. Yep. I was like, Rabies, you're probably not... There's no way he will end up fixing this because I think this is still, in modern day, when a human gets infected, I don't think there's much you can do. But apparently the method, I looked it up, and the method that Buster introduced is still being used. Though mm, yeah. It's not the most effective, but it is being used. So Nice. That's really cool. That's really cool. I didn't have that in my fun fact, so that's a good fun fact. Mm, yeah. Yeah, basically there's one personification of the people that are against Pasteur's new ways, which is Mr. Charbonnet. Mm. And he is a character because, like, it's this thing, right, where I can see his side because Pasteur is being quite experimental to the point where at some point he gets a boy at his door that has been infected with rabies, but his cure isn't really tested very well yet. Like, it's Basically, they tested it once on a few dogs and it seems to be working, but they don't have Mm -hmm. conclusive evidence yet. But he does try it on the boy. So I get Charbonnet being like, well, maybe you're being more dangerous than... That's the the thing, though, with rabies is like, this boy is going to die, period. So either he dies, 
to rabies or or you fix him maybe dies to the vaccine that's like a 50 50 at that point so do you take the 100 percent chance of death or do you take the 50 50 of him maybe surviving this True. I think the danger is more in, you know, what if there are side effects that don't specifically work on this boy and then it continues to... That's absolutely true. It doesn't work as definitive evidence, but it's a good step for your research. It's a yeah. bit. Un- it would be unethical if they were just like, okay, we're going to infect this boy with rabies and see if it mm-hmm. works. But if the boy already has it, like, might as well. What have you got yeah. to lose? Yeah, true, true. It's more like Charbonnet is portrayed as this really evil guy and he does some nasty things, like he blackmails Buster at some point. But I do get the point. Oh yeah, no. Oh yeah. Maybe we should be a little bit more careful we should be about bit, yeah. the way we're doing this. Absolutely. But you know, in a movie, he's just an asshole, basically. Yeah, <laughs> to be fair, we should probably note this is a highly fictionalized version of yeah. events. Like, I'm sure Buster was also put down a lot more favorably than he actually yeah. was. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> the, 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 it was very fictionalized, but good nonetheless. Good nonetheless. Yeah. Very yeah. much. Um, I also really like that there wasn't that much romance because even though romance, again, nothing against it necessarily, but mm-hmm. it's such a thing with the 1930 movies. Like it's yeah. there's no escaping it. Which at some point I'm like, I would like to see something else maybe. And this one, it only really has the story of Pasteur's daughter and one of the apprentices that he has. But that's about it. It's great because you can actually thank Paul Mooney for that. Hey. Originally, Hal Wallace, who I believe was producer on this question mark, mm-hmm. he rejected the original script because he wanted the movie to be a college romance. But Paul Mooney had script control in this contract, so the moment he got the screenplay, he just wrote across the top, "I approve this script as written." So they had to film the original oh, script. Fuck yeah, yeah, and be fucking glad that they did because it won an Oscar. The script. Yeah. In fact, Pierre Collins and Sheridan Gibney became the first two people to win two Academy Awards for the same film. It won for Best Screenplay and Best Original Story. Hey, I love that. I think, yeah, I like this movie a lot. Yeah, it's fantastic. Any quotes? One. <laughs> oh, good. Of Mr. Buster saying to his colleague all the way at the beginning... There are some guys coming to check out the sheep and see, like, why is this specific province not getting infected with the anthrax, with the plague? Mm-hmm. And they find Mr. Pasteur, and Mr. Pasteur's like, okay, I'll explain to you, even though you probably won't believe me. So he goes to his colleague and says, will you try and explain to Dr. Radis what we're doing? Yeah. He's a member of the Academy of Medicine, so you'll have to use very simple language. <laughs> which I love. It's <laughs> yep, such a roast. so good. <laughs> I love when they're like that. Oh, that's good. I don't have that many fun facts, honestly. Mm. Uh, it's a very straightforward movie. It, it it was a very low budget, $330,000, because that was like the bare minimum for an A picture, because Warner Brothers had no fucking faith in this movie. No new sets were built. Oh. They were just like redecorated sets that they already had. Napoleon's Palace was originally a nightclub for a Busby production, Oh my god. Stuff like that. And then it got a bunch of Oscars and now holds a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, hell fucking yeah. Damn deserved. Like, it's solid. It's very solid. It's really solid. And maybe you could tell that the budget wasn't that high in the sense of, like, the sets weren't very extravagant or anything, but I think that's the only thing. I wouldn't have noticed otherwise. No, same. 
my final fun fact for this, and I think this is possibly the best thing about this movie, is the fact that an electrician for Warner Brothers came up to Paul Mooney because they watched an advanced screening of the film for cast, crew, and family. And um, he told him that after watching the movie, because of Mooney's performance, his nine-year-old son had asked him to buy him a microscope. And Mooney said that even though he went on to win an Oscar for it, Mooney said that this was the greatest compliment that he had ever received, and all other accolades meant nothing compared to that one. And I, I fully agree. That's amazing. This I motherfucker single handedly got a child into science. Heck Brilliant. yeah. Brilliant. Well done. 10 out of 10. Nothing left to say. Then, free. Tale of no, Two Cities. Tale of two... Okay, I heard you say earlier you loved it, and so did I. Yes. It's so good. Yes. It's she so liked good. a classic. She liked a classic. Oh. I liked a classic. Oh. I love this one. It's and so good. Most of the credit goes to um, Ronald Coleman, who yep. played Carton. Damn right. He was so, so good. fucking good. Like I think mostly because he's one of the first actors that isn't very extravagant or something. Like mm. he feels so realistic. He's very calm about the way he goes about things, and it's more modern day, maybe even in that it's so subtle. And we love yeah. subtle performance. Well, I'm very glad you liked him. I'm going to immediately insert really quickly because uh-huh. this dude, like, they had no trouble finding a lead for this because Coleman wanted this since he began his career. Like, he knew this novel oh. front to back, mm-hmm. back to front, upside, inside, out. Seven years before being cast, he was like, I want to play this. Carton, I mm-hmm. quote, Carton has lived for me since the first instant I discovered him in the pages of the novel. He was in it for this oh and and he did so fucking well he was even willing to shave off his mustache yes absolutely. and also in the book there's one change that they made from the book which is that in the book carden and darnay are supposed to be very similar like twins pretty much mm-hmm. and they originally wanted coleman to play both roles but coleman refused and the director later said, I'm very glad that he didn't do that because I think a great deal of the illusion might have been lost if Coleman had rescued Coleman and then Coleman had gone to the gate mm-hmm. so Coleman could get away. Absolutely true. So the fact that Coleman just knew this book so goddamn well mm-hmm. and yeah. I, Absolute <laughs> love. Yeah. And then we also get a Basil Rathbone again. Great. Love it. Yeah. Um, Edna May Oliver again. Yeah. And just in general, this movie just... Also did a really good job and keeping me at the edge of my seat. Mm -hmm. I did kind of see where it was going. The story is about (laughs) quite a lot. It covers quite a lot. I thought it covers quite a lot. Yeah, we have a woman. Oh, God, what's her name? Lucy. Lucy, yes. Lucy meets Darnay. They are in love, get married. But Lucy also meets Carton, who falls in love with her, but, you know, it can't be because mm. she gets married to Darnay. And he is an alcoholic. He's very sad in life, basically, but he values her so fucking much. But Darnay is from royal lineage, from France. So the whole revolution breaks out. We get the whole Bastille storming and everything. And... He returns to France because he gets tricked into it. Yeah. And at that point, he is stuck in prison and he's going to go to the guillotine. It is decided because, you know, revolution and all the royals must die. Yeah. So Carton then takes his place in prison by some smart trick and dies instead of Darnay. So that Lucy can stay with Darnay. It is... Mm -hmm. 
Charles Dickens. You can see where it go uh, goes. You yeah. can see kind of the moment that Darnay gets captured. It's like, okay, yeah. Yeah, they've clearly been set up to look super alive. Yeah. And yeah. Carton earlier already has a line where he mentions, you know, if I could ever give my life for you, Lucy, or for anyone that you love, I would do it. So it's already like, okay, he's yeah. going to do this. He's going <laughs> to... Um, but, you know, how good a movie has to be for you to know how it's going to end and you're and still, still be into it. Like, yeah, this, so good. Oh, I fucking love Charles Dickens. Camera oh. was also good. They had some shots, for example, they went upstairs and the camera went like up with them. Great. Love it. Love it when we get camera movement. Portable cameras quite are, are really, <laughs> they are such an understated development in the film world. Oh, yes. Oh my God. <laughs> I love camera movement so much. It's something that I didn't know how much I cared about until I lost it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad yes. to be getting it back now, man. <laughs> yes. For real, for real. Razzle, Ma- Razzle? Who is Razzle? Razzle Bathbone, yeah. <laughs> Basil Rathbone plays the Marquis, so one of the royals at the start that is really, really a bad person. Because, of course, he's evil. Um, mm-hmm. I have a quote for that. Ah, yes. The Basil Rathbone character asks, uh, What about Roulette? Has he paid his rent? No, Your Excellency, nor will he. Roulette died last week. Now, that was impertinent of him. He died with his rent unpaid. That's how evil he is. Like, <laughs> yep. he's like, how dare the bitch die without... Nah. How dare he? Basil Rathbone character died without even a sword fight. Boo. Boo boo. Boo. Scene of the storming of the Bastille is impressive. A lot of extras. A lot, lot of extras. And big castle. I don't know. Impressive. Mm. Court case as well. Uh, this this whole thing it's not really a court case but you know they do have a court and then there's all the people that were discriminated against before by the royals and it's just them yelling and throwing things and i can't imagine having to keep that in check on set so (laughs) props to them yep I I cared so much about Carton. Carton better not die for Dornay. No, Carton's gonna be executed instead of Dornay, isn't he? I love how this got you invested in a fucking it romance did. story. No, god damn it, I like Carton way better. <laughs> fucking love uh, that. That's so good. Carton is such a sweetheart with the girl. He just before they go to the guillotine, he finds this girl, or this girl finds him rather. And he's like, I'm so scared. Will you hold my hand as we go? And he's super calm about it. Mm. You know, he has yeah, not been very happy in life. So, you know, he's happy to do this for Lucy. Yeah, he's happy and to he mean something. And he has kind of accepted his fate. Yeah, yeah. it's going to mean something. So he's super chill and it helps this girl out so much. Um, I really love the ending also camera-wise because we don't get... Obviously, we don't get to see the actual head going yeah. off because Hayes Code. Hayes Code. But... The camera instead moves up as the guillotine drops and it kind of goes to the sky and we yeah. get a voiceover from Carton that is so nice. Mm. Dickens has a really comfortable way of writing. My one quote from this movie is the one that's like right at the beginning, the start of the novel, which is the, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the season of light, the season of darkness. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. In short, it was a period very like the present. I fucking yeah. love Dickens's writing because it's always shit like that. Mm-hmm. And the, that voiceover at the end is very similar in the sense of... Yeah. I think it's... Uh, Lovely. Have you got the quote? So peaceful. 
No, I don't have the quote. I have it here. It is, it's a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest I go to than I have ever known. Fucking raw. Like... Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. Holy shit, dude. Okay, let me see. I do have some other quotes. Um, This one is more funny. Barset and Cly. A case like that could be tried on mere sound. What are you talking about? Well, Barset and Cly, or Cly and Barset, by the very sound of their names, by the build of their syllables, are manifestly villains. <laughs> yup. Get discriminated against because of your names. He also tells this, this is Carton, telling this to his friend. And the friend later uses this line to kind of impress other people. And mm. Carton is right next to him going like, bro, I, that's just my, okay. When you say a joke <laughs> and someone repeats it louder and gets to laugh, it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, then in court, there is, uh, this is a kind of side story, people, it doesn't really matter. But there's a guy earlier in the movie trying to make sure that Darnay goes to prison. But Carton is defending him, or well, his friend is defending mm-hmm. him, but Carton is doing all the mastermind work. And Darnay's lawyer goes, Mr. Barr said, have you ever been kicked? Certainly not. Come, come, Mr. Barr said. Weren't you one time kicked downstairs? Well, once I was kicked at the top of the stairs, but I fell down the stairs of my own will and volition. <laughs> Which I think is such a good, like, next time I fall over, trip over, I'm just going to be like, nope. I no, meant I, to I do chose that. to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was all I have. I fucking loved it. Amazing. I'm so glad you finally liked one of the classic movies. I oh. finally did. Yes. I'm this is a catharsis. Victory. <laughs> Victory. I have some some funky quote for or not quotes, some funky fun facts. Mhm. The big one is that uh, this was David O. Seltonic's last film for MGM. Oh. Because his films were doing really well. And because of the strength of this film's box office receipts, he was able to just fund his own studio afterwards. So he formed his own production company with John Hay Whitney. What was it called? Seltonic International. Oh, okay, fair enough. Yeah, he his name has been around everywhere, yeah. so it doesn't surprise me that he no, was su- successful enough. Yeah, he he was great. He didn't direct the Storming of the Bastille, though. Uh, wait, was Selznick the director? Mm, probably producer. My pretty producer, he, actually. Yeah. Jack Conway and Robert Z. Leonard were the directors. Nice. Except for the Storming of the Bastille, which was directed by Val Luton and Jacques Tourneur. And they would later go on to make such horror classics as Cat People and I Walked with a Zombie. Cat people, that sounds wonderful. 1942, cat people. And my final fun fact for this is that Lucille Laverne is in this movie. Now, Lucille Laverne originally tried out for Madame Laferge, didn't get it, and instead she became the Vengeance uh, Mm -hmm. character. You know, know, know. that was her. This is the final on-screen appearance for Lucille Laverne. We're going to talk about her next year, though. Oh. Because... She's going to be doing something else? She's going to be the voice of the Wicked Witch in Snow White. Oh, oh my god. Lovely. Yeah, she's also going to die of cancer very shortly after, which is not as great. No. But, yeah, this is the final time she was seen on screen, and then the thing that actually gave her fame was after that. That that was voice only. Huh. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, I, I can see her definitely as a Snow White evil. Oh, yeah. <laughs> queen, oh, so. she she's going to do fantastically. 
so yeah, that's a little tease for for next one. Oh, oh sorry, for I have one, one more fun fact, um, which is mm-hmm. the fact that in the, the the end title, it plays Adesta Fidelis, which is you know, oh come, all ye faithful. The film has mm-hmm. nothing to do with Christmas. The, there's no reason to play a Christmas song. It's just that Charles Dickens, though. Yeah, it's just that Charles Dickens has become so synonymous with Christmas that even his novels that have nothing to do with the, with the, with the holiday. Right. right. So yeah, that's pretty funny. Right. <laughs> so yeah, final movie. Final movie, Three Smart Girls. Three Smart Girls. Which was girls. very refreshing because, again, it has no actor that we know. Yep, zero. But I thought it was quite lovely. Yeah, it, well, it, so it's, it's the parent trap. I don't know the parent trap. It's a movie starring Lindsay Lohan and Lindsay Lohan as twins <laughs> who are separated at birth and then they find each other and find out that, oh shit, maybe we're actually related. One, essentially, the parents get divorced and both take one of the twins and they're like, yeah, this is a good idea. And then the twins meet each other by accident at like a summer camp and they're like, wait a fucking second, you might be my long lost twin sister. Let's get our parents back together. That'll be a right, fun thing to yeah. do. And that's what this is. It's yeah. it's three it's sisters. Three young girls. Their dad's going to marry like a younger mm-hmm. woman and they go, no, no, no. No. We're going to get someone else to seduce the fiance. And <laughs> because their mom is like heartbroken about it. Yeah. And, and they're like, we're going to get our parents back together. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of a comedy again. And it does a good job at it. I thought it was, it's quite similar in vibe to The Libeled Lady. It's a little less good than that one. Yeah. But I still thought it was a bunch of fun. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. It's re- it was really fun. That's kind of all I have to say about it as well. It was just, it was, I, it was fun. Yeah, I get that. There, I don't think there's that much to say about it, but I am gonna quickly see. Yeah, just check. But it's possibly the least deep movie on this list. It's definitely the least deep. It doesn't really cover anything deep. It's just supposed to be fun, and it is. Yeah, it is. I did a good job at that. I, I'm not sure if I would say, yeah, that's an Oscar nomination because, yeah, I feel like. When you get nominated for an Oscar, it doesn't have to be super deep, but maybe at least... Yeah, I kind of agree. ...touch upon something, but it's okay. It was fun to watch. I didn't mind at all. Um, Screenplay about woman written by a woman. Good, good. Also, good to mention probably is that the dad is going to be married to a younger woman, but also she's definitely a gold digger. Oh, yeah. The only reason she's marrying this man is because he is rich. He's hella rich, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're basically like, we're not just going to get any man to seduce him. We're going to get like a really rich guy to seduce him. But Yeah, and then he falls in love with one of the sisters. Yeah, it's yeah. also funny because they have a friend who is going to send a guy that isn't actually rich, but he's going to give them money so it looks like he's rich because mm-hmm. he is a count from Hungary. But then there is a mix-up at the party and accidentally they get the wrong guy who is actually fucking rich and yep. he is actually owns half of Australia. <laughs> yep. And, um, yeah, he falls in love with one of the sisters, which is why he messes up his duty. And so it almost looks like their father is going to marry the gold digger. But they fix it in the end and it's all good. But it's really fun. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. The maid really looked like Meryl Streep. Meryl's a little bit prettier, but like also in acting, it was really weird. Uh, The girls, when they first see their dad in a restaurant, straight up knock over a server and it's amazing physical comedy yeah, because is. they run over to their dad and this butler just almost out of frame ducks to the floor <laughs> amazing it's consistently when the physical comedy in these movies just oh yeah really good the free girls main girls are lovely like they're a little bit ignorant but not in a bad way because they're super young yeah, so exactly. it's kind of sweet uh the dad is also really adorable there's 
nothing wrong with him and he is getting tricked into this marriage so good mm. that they're helping yeah um, very cool shot of penny the um, one of the youngest of the girls swinging back and forth towards the camera she's like in a swing and she like swings super close to the camera and it's very cool yeah it's pretty sick I love how the dad's butler is in for any of the girls' plans. Oh, yeah. That's the best stuff about movies like this, right? Where it's like, uh -huh. the butler serves the whole family, including the kids. So whatever the kids do, you gotta, li you gotta listen, you know? And if that means fucking yeah. with your boss a little, yeah, yeah. No, that's, yeah, the, that's the vibe. It's really funny. Oh, and finally, we have one of the girls at the end fall straight into a kiss. Oh, I don't yeah. know how they executed that because she straight falls like... It's impressive. Onto his lips. It's impressive. Very honestly. physically impressive, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Strong choreography. The girls arrive and they first see the butler. And they ask him, What's she like, Bins? And he says, Well, she's. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. <laughs> and I thought that was funny because that's the way we talk. Yeah. We, it's just how we always go. You skip like, the descriptors, yeah. It just be like that. It, you know? It, yep. <laughs> yes, she, she this is. This was a movie. She exists. This was the movie, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then at some point, the girls are looking at the woman, the gold digger, and they don't like her very much, so they're kind of plodding, like, some savage tribes put honey all over people and let the ants devour them. It's yep. too hard to get enough ants. I read about a man that invented a ray that positively shrivels people at 200 yards. Where is he? In Sweden, I think. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and finally, the count at the party going, have you any non-alcoholic beverages, he asks, because he's been told not to have mm -hmm. alcohol. And the guy goes, certainly, sir. And he's like, you have? Which he hadn't expected. So he just yep. continues with, whiskey straight, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really good. These comedies are very cleverly written. I appreciate yeah. them greatly. But yeah, that was all I had. Ooh, okay. Well, I have, again, not that many fun facts about this. It was Because mm -hmm. it was, you know, a pretty small movie. Mostly my fun facts are about Diana Durbin, who is the 14-year-old the child. Oh, the 14-year-old. Oh, right. Is that her singing voice? Because I feel like it isn't. It is. Oh, it is. It okay, is. that's impressive. Yes. Yeah, so the thing with Diana Durbin is that this was her feature film debut. And she was mm -hmm. billed as Universal's new discovery, which is kind of fucked up. Because, like, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about marketing child stars that heavily, yeah. right? Yeah. It was reportedly, like, when viewing the rushes, that they were like, oh, we need to increase Diana Durbin's screen time. She is going right. to lead us to victory. Because this was, it was made at one of, like, the many, many, many times that Universal was, like, mm -hmm. about to be bankrupt. And this was, like, their right. big Christmas release. So they were like, okay, we're banking on this shit. And it became a critical success and a box office sensation. So it, it spawned, like, I think there was two sequels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cast members kept dropping out in the first sequel one of the sisters dropped out and then in the third sequel only Deanna Durbin is still in there oh god okay but yes it, it, it led to a string of Deanna Durbin musicals I think eight years worth of just Deanna Durbin musical after musical after musical and then obviously My you god. know she ages out of the child star appeal but yeah. that's what helped keep Universal afloat during the war essentially which is a, a crazy concept so yeah, it, and I never heard of her before. <laughs> me neither, and that's I think to an extent even more heart wrenching. The fact that this kid from fourteen to like twenty two was just movie after movie mm. after movie, and then kind of forgotten. Yeah, 
that is a little sad. Yeah, terrifying as a concept to me. Uh, yeah, I feel very iffy about the exploitation of children, which mm-hmm. I think is a good thing to feel iffy about. You know. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um. So yeah, onto some more fun facts. Mm-hmm. Alice Brady playing the girl's mother. Uh, she plays Binnie Barnes' mother, the the oldest kid, even though she's only eleven years older than Barnes. <laughs> yeah, that's not really possible, but nice. Yeah. And then I have <laughs> one final one, which is not really a fun fact. I always check the IMDb goofs page for this, right? Like mm-hmm. the continuity errors and stuff. And a lot of them are not that interesting. Mm-hmm. But there's two here. One of them is is like an actual goof where it's like, there's a scene where someone picks up the handset and the phone continues to ring, which is haha, silly. But then in that uh-huh. same sort of like list of mistakes like that... There's one under the miscellaneous tag, and I'm going to read it to you in the exact wording that it says here, because oh God. it's fucking incredible. It is not at all like something you'd expect in this list. It literally uh-huh. says, no Hungarian, let alone an educated count, would say, oi Budapest, ja. That's the goof. <laughs> I love someone was very fucking someone angry so about this. so upset about that. <laughs> I mean, I get it, you know, if someone... No, actually, if someone Dutch was portrayed like this, I wouldn't care, probably. But, like, yeah, so good. Like, it's fantastic. I, oh, someone else, after the internet was invented, was still angry enough about this. <laughs> to make a little... Yeah. <laughs> to make yep. an angry remark about it. Lovely. Oh, so, well, yeah. That's our, that's our movies. That's our movies, guys. That's our movies. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that fantastic and lovely? And great. Now, honorary awards. Should I first play the game of which one was the odd one out? Yeah, let's start with that. Well, yeah, let's start with that. Because obviously one Mm -hmm. of them won an honorary award. Let's wait. Let's first really quickly go through some honorable mentions for the year before we go into the awards. Because I have two that I've written down. Uh Uh, One of them being that this year... After the Thin Man released, the Thin Man sequel. Yeah. Then there is a movie that released called The General Died at Dawn. It's only notable for the fact that it's a Lewis Milestone movie. Mm-hmm. And it's one of his like biggest movies. It didn't get nominated for anything. But Lewis Milestone, you know, we've we've been through a lot with, with Mr. Yeah. Lewis. So. And then there's a movie that I found while going through my list of movie that I, I, <laughs> I want to quickly look up. Because I want mm-hmm. to write the plot uh, or tell you the plot accurately. It is called Theodora Goes Wild mm-hmm. by Irene Dunn, uh, stars in this. Mm-hmm. So she is a Sunday school teacher and former church organist in Linfield, Connecticut. And she also happens to be, under the pen name Caroline Adams, the secret author of a sensational best-selling book replete with sexual innuendo. Oh, and that is allowed. And, that, and that's what the movie is. Which oh my god. is incredibly fucking funny to me. Oh my god. Essentially, it's just the residents in the small town being absolutely incensed by this novel, not knowing that it was written by a member of the leading family of the town. Oh my god. This was Irene Dunn's first comedic movie, and it was like, it was a it was a whole new, like, she essentially just pivoted from there to being a comedic actress. She just shifted... And that's so fucking funny. I can't believe that got past the Hayes code. What the fuck? Yeah, it's goddamn hilarious (laughs) to me. So, you know who's also in in this movie? Uh Uh-huh. No. Best Flowers? 
Oh my god! That's <laughs> so hey. Yes. Yes. Woo, woo, woo. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I really quickly wanted to get those Mentioned out there. that I get that amazing. Well, as for I'm looking for an honorary award. I, I mean, it has to be the thing that makes the most sense, which is the color, right? I mean, it is only the third movie. That's the thing that doesn't make sense to me. Like, why not reward the first movie to have it? But it's like the odd one out. So I'm gonna say Garden Novella. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely hey. dead correct. It's Garden of Allah. Good. I'm glad it didn't get a that it didn't actually get a best picture. No. Yeah, exactly. That makes so much sense. Yeah, the honorary award went to uh, W. Howard Green and Harold Rosson for the color cinematography of the Seltznik International production, The Garden of Allah. Yes, it was a Seltznik International production. Hey! Oh, they did really not yeah, start not great, off well. Huh? But nope. <laughs> I mean, I'm very happy about that because yeah. it definitely wasn't good enough to get a Best Picture nomination, but they definitely deserve credit for, for the color. making yeah. one of the first ever color movies, even though I still I don't understand it why It should have been one. the one about the dancing pirates. <laughs> for real. <laughs> the other honorary award went to The March of Time, which is not actually a film. It is a uh, newsreel series. Oh. It's short films about twice the length of a standard newsreel. Mm-hmm. It's sort of pictorial journalism, I think. Was, right. It was described like that by the editor of, of Time magazine. Art vlog. Mm-hmm. It's like an art vlog. Kind of, but like based on news stuff. News, right. Which is really fascinating. And the honorary award went to the March of Time for its significance to motion pictures and for having revolutionized one of the most important branches of the industry, the newsreel. Which is interesting, yeah. Yeah, that's completely fair. Nice. So I like that. Bingo on the bonus awards. So, we have ten movies here. Do you mm-hmm. want to rank them first and then guess? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Just to be clear, we won't do Garnavella because we usually... Don't do the honorary awards in our top tens, but I think we can both say it would have been Oh, it 11. would have been 11 regardless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. know straight up without a single doubt. Yeah. Um. Okay, 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 okay. So we start at number 10. You're not going to uh, be happy about this, but mine, his dots were... If you dare. Oh. Ooh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm going to be honest. I'm kind of struggling. No, mine is Anthony Adverse. Oh, number two. Yeah, that would be my number nine. Yeah. My number nine is... It's very difficult. It's so difficult for me. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I said at the very start of the episode. This one is going to be really difficult. No, actually it isn't. It's Mr. Deeds. Yeah, my number eight is Mr. Deeds. Wow. Look at her but just then. sinking Dodsworth down to the bottom. <laughs> Ooh. Mm. Now it gets really hard, though. I don't know from here on out. I'm going to probably have to say... So for me, number eight is between Romeo and Juliet and San Francisco. And I'm currently contemplating Mm -hmm. whether the last 15 minutes of San Francisco were enough to redeem it to be above Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think so. Fair enough. No, I just don't think so. Sorry. San Francisco on eight and then Romeo and Juliet Mm -hmm. on seven. Uh, seven for me is also Romeo and Juliet. Okay, we're we're sort of syncing up. Yeah, we're syncing up except for Dotsworth because I think uh is number six San Francisco. I have such mixed feelings about San Francisco because if it would have been just the ending, it would have probably been my number two or maybe one. But I can't yeah. because it's such a sucky character. Um, I'm gonna say San Francisco's. 
earthquake part was so good that it's made up for a lot. So that would put for me number six, Free Smart Girls, which was very fun, but not impressive. Ooh, okay. I feel like this is where we might differ. Because I think my number six is maybe going to be the Great Ziegfeld. Oh, I get that. I can see that. It's quite low, quite low on the list, but... I think my number five will end up being San Francisco because in the end, if yeah. you want to make a good movie, you can't mess up with three quarters of it. But... No, yeah, exactly. My number five will probably end up being Three Smart Girls. My number four is Story of Louis Buster. It's just mm-hmm. not in the top three for me because ah, it's so close, but... Number four for me will be The Great Siegfeld. Yeah, that's fair. I'm going to finally slot in Dodsworth. Number three for me. As yes, finally. <laughs> It was a fight, though, between that and, and two mm-hmm. cities. But Dodsworth was just... It, listen, Dickens, man. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, oh, God. It's, a, it's always so hard. Um, is Label Lady going No, I'll put number three, Story of Louis Pasteur. Mm. We have the same final two? Yes, but they are reversed, I think. Like Tale of Two Cities and Labeled Lady? I think so. Well... I'm sticking Libeled Lady in number one, so... Yeah, I'm sticking Libeled Lady in number two. Unbelievable. Wow, she's yeah. ranked a Dickens movie higher than oh, me. Oh, number one. I know, but I was so invested. I was so into it. That's insane. Just wow. a good movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, out of these ten, which one do you reckon oh. won outstanding oh. production? Oh, okay. Let me quickly uh, see. I always kind of go, this one can, this one can. Um, Tale of Two Cities could be great Siegfeld could be Anthony Edwards surely not surely fucking not Romeo and Juliet oh no no the public didn't even like it no way Free Smart Girls is not deep enough Libel Lady I don't think they'd go with a comedy like that Mr. D's Ghost of Town I refuse to believe Dotsworths I refuse to believe San Francisco is a possibility for how big it was um mm, Story of Louis Pasteur, I thought not, but hearing from you how well it did, maybe? Hmm. I'm gonna go with San Francisco, I think. Ooh. Well, the Oscar goes to... The Great Ziegfeld. Oh, okay. That falls in line. That falls in line completely oh with yeah it makes perfect winners. sense i'm just not happy about it <laughs> but it, it makes sense like it was a fine movie but it was not this year's winner come on no come on. no it really wasn't um few tiny fun facts about this mm-hmm. this is the first biopic to win an academy award for best picture right, right. it is the first best picture winner to have the name of a person in the title mm-hmm. and <laughs> this is my personal favorite it is one of only two best picture winners ever to have a Z. <laughs> That's so specific. What's the other one? Oh, wait, we can't You're tell. You're gonna find out. <laughs> <laughs> I do want you to mention it when we get there. Oh, yeah, we'll, I absolutely will mention it when we get there. Don't you but worry. Yeah, it falls in line, the great Siegfeld, with they just really like the extravagant big budget movies. Yeah, it's literally I, that, yeah. That's also kind of why I went for San Francisco because of the big the budget final on 15 the minutes. Yeah, exactly. Like, they're really into that and that was also musicals they really like. Hmm. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. It makes sense. So yeah, All right. That was that, a, that was, was the, the ninth year Academy Awards. of nineteen thirty-seven. Wow, we 
Wow, we it was a good year. I liked most of them. Yeah, they were solid. E- even the ones that I didn't necessarily like, as like I thought they were fantastic, were still mm-hmm. good movies. They were all functional movies, except Garden of Allah. Yeah. but that was you know impressive <laughs> in a different way. We ignored that one. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, for sure. Thank you all for listening to this episode. Thank you very much. Obviously, we'd, we'd like, like to, to thank, thank our wives, wives and the and academy. The academy. Wow, he said that in sync. Oh my god, we're so in sync. Oh my, oh my god. god. <laughs> and we'll see you all next year in 1938 for the 10th Academy Awards. Slightly, slightly later because the ceremony. The ceremony? The ceremony? The ceremony was postponed. <gasps> Shock. Yeah. Ooh, oh. drama. Ooh. Drama. Tune in next month. Tune in to next see. month. Um, are we gonna make or the month next after because it might be yeah the the actual oscars are coming like yes. the current date ones and we might not be able to make yeah you know, we mentioned this shortly at the end of 10 last episode, extra but movies <laughs> yeah we're gonna keep you up to date on our twitter but um there will probably uh, be a sorry, break what's, for one what's month twitter on our fucking <laughs> we'll update you on our x uh but there's gonna be a, probably a pause for one month and then we'll do an episode on to 2024 academy awards but yep. when exactly the break is gonna be we're not sure we don't yet, know so yet we'll keep you up to date yep um see you then see, see you then. next time bye bye <laughs>